0: us it's back to bourbon this week for me after after last week's uh cognac brandy oh i'm 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 coming i'm back to uh you know the, the uh the official well what we call the official adult music podcast drink if anybody else wants to sponsor us they could become the official adult music podcast drink but uh for now it's um knobs creek single barrel bourbon
1: that's what i have here too
0: and and it's kind I'm of smoothing my voice out here. I don't feel, I don't, feel, I don't sound out. like the music nerd that I always sound like.
1: You know, like I little, unlike,
0: yeah.
1: unlike <laughs> other episodes, uh, I haven't had anything to drink <laughs> before I started the episode either. You know, usually I've been out oh, cooking you walk, some- You
0: warm up, do you? Yeah.
1: Well, I've been out cooking uh, some steaks or, and I've had yeah. some wine or something too. So- uh, You,
0: go, you uh, cook a lot of steaks. <laughs> yeah.
1: Just nothing makes me happier than steak and- a You know, nice bottle of wine. um, Well,
0: those are two good things. And then some bourbon for dessert. But we're just starting out. I personally like pasta, but you know, that would I would, wouldn't I?
1: You might get sleepy after if you started doing the podcast after a big plate of pasta.
0: Yeah, they say, but I don't know. You know, they everybody says like these days they're saying like um, you know carbs are like no good for you. But I mean, my ancestors have been eating carbs for at least five hundred years. I mean, but do they (laughs) weigh five hundred pounds? Uh they 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 uh yeah, I suppose they were they didn't weigh five hundred pounds, but oh. they kinda they didn't uh not until they, they came to America. Quite, they weren't quite svelte in their old age, let's just say that. I mean they right. looked okay. I don't know. The, um the women didn't put on too many pounds. Yeah, I um, could They, get by but, uh, they all lived to these well. really old ages too, so I don't know. Maybe it's that um you know, I guess you're just eating the food you grow in the field there when you're
1: That's got something to do with it, I'm sure.
0: Yeah. You know, yeah, we don't have, we don't do that anymore, do we?
1: They didn't have all that junk. Right. Well, we've got uh good booze and we're going to need it for episode yeah. 30.
0: Oh, episode 30 today. Episode and 30. what's this podcast called? This is the
1: Adult Music Podcast, the podcast with music for the mature mind. And this is Russ here and, and Michael there. And thanks
0: for reminding me because I almost forgot. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I got to tell you who you are. Sometimes, yeah. You know?
0: Sometimes, you know, we're not getting any I don't know. any younger here while we do this. Yeah, but if I actually forget who I am, that means I've attained enlightenment because I'm not no longer, you know, a being, and then that'll be a good thing. Yeah, I Dr- suppose
1: drift away into right. the next realm. Yeah. Well, before we get going here on episode thirty, I want to remind our listeners in our episode description. Find links to Spotify and Apple Music for all the music that we'll discuss. And at the top of the description is also a link to the full episode playlist. That's all the music in one place on our preferred streaming platform, Deezer, where you can also follow us at uh, username Adult Music Podcast and listen to the podcast on there as well. Uh, if you don't see the full description, or list of the music on whatever app or platform you're listening to, uh, please come over and check us out on our host, Podbean, where everything is formatted nicely and all the links are sure to work. Now, if you enjoy the podcast, uh, please follow or subscribe on whatever app or platform you're listening to us on. And please do take a minute to uh, give us a ranking or write a review. That helps us get listed in the browsing categories on the various platforms, which helps us get Uh, new listeners, and grow our audience. Uh, And if you'd like to contact us directly with any comments or questions, our email address is adultmusicpodcast, that's all one word, at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah, please
0: write to us. We're just sitting around waiting for those emails to come in. waiting for them
1: to come in. Actually, we get a lot of really interesting uh, emails, but unfortunately, a lot of them are spam. (laughs) <laughs> but they're interesting spams too yeah.
0: they're interesting we do get interesting spam yes. I have to say alright so are we going to engage in um this, this in our musical necrology now or do you want to wait for the jazz sec- section here uh, I'll leave uh, it up to you alright we should do this now let's see okay. so we lost a great jazz musician this, year, this week the organist Dr. Lonnie Smith yes has passed away and um we we talked about his latest album actually on an earlier uh, podcast. We we liked it pretty much. It was an interesting
1: album. Uh, yeah. Good backing band, and yeah. we also found out you know he was a big inspiration and good friend of Mike Ledon when we interviewed him yeah. too. And uh, that's where the title for his album came from.
2: Right, uh, it's, it's all right.
1: your fault because that's what Dr. Lonnie would say to him every time they met. <laughs> we don't know what, it, what what is what was his fault, but. Yeah, that was an interesting. You he, just say it's all your fault. We were thinking, yeah.
0: I wanted to call that podcast It's All Your Fault, Mike Ladon, you know, because that was I that's think that's the what name we of the album. Call it, yeah. yeah, yeah, but we said, Mike Ladon, It's All Your Fault. Like oh. it was the album title. And we were just, right. I wanted to like say it the way Dr. Lonnie said it. But it's okay. It's cool. All right. Anyway, you might want to listen to that interview, by the way. It's really good. We should probably talk yeah. to him again about Lonnie Smith or something like that. Yeah, I'm sure he uh,
1: misses him a lot.
0: I think a lot of the. of. Um, Organists, even like guys like Joey Di Francesco, probably knew him. Too. They all know each other. I think a lot of these guys. So, you know, you, should, you probably talk to somebody else about him too.
1: Yeah, I've got yeah, a couple people. more organ albums on the list too. We'll have to get another organ wow. episode a, coming. It's, through. it's
0: a very heavy organ year for me. Yeah, I've it's got it's, a lot. Of, uh, I've acquired a lot of organ albums. This seems year. to
1: be gaining some steam. I'm happy to see lots of new organ albums coming out.
0: Right. Well, actually, we're going like to hear that.
1: some tonight too. Actually,
0: yeah, a little bit. Yeah, mm. we have a lot of guitar in the jazz um, That's right. category this... tonight. It's all. It's in fact. Well, the jazz, the guitar isn't always the lead instrument, but they all feature like That's electric the guitar. That's the theme.
1: That's why I put them together. Yeah. Yeah. It's another string thing.
0: All right, another string thing. Okay, here we go. Anyway, I guess we're going to get to the uh, classical first, and I'm back to my usual pattern of um, starting out with a Baroque-era recording, and this was a really good one. This one's called uh, Génération, with an S at the end. It's uh, French, but you can tell because of the um, the accents on the E's.
1: There's a lot of accents on this uh, album cover. Yeah,
0: there are. On oh, the album cover?
1: Well, I mean in the in the uh, title and her. the names here.
0: Oh yeah, yeah in the two, names.
1: Too. Yeah. 3 4 or at least 4.
0: Yeah. I, I kind of like these those um French uh accents. they kind of look like eyebrows, you know, like the raised eyebrows. Oh yeah. Like a name like Helen, you know, it's kind of got the the you know, kind of looks mm. like somebody like like someone who's really surprised like the eyebrows are up. I don't know, I <laughs> kind of always felt like that. I don't know. Anyway, Um, (laughs) anyway, all right. And in fact, this album is, the artists on this album are one of our favorites, uh, Theotim Langlois de Svart. We've talked about him twice already. This is the third album that he's on that we talked about. The other two, one of them was The Mad Lover, which we really liked a lot. That's great With, um, Thomas Dunford on the lute. And then we talked about, uh, the Proust, um, concert, which kind of really took off. Um, that was with, um tangui i forget the guy's name the uh pianist, oh, yeah. on an, an on an erard piano and it was a late 19th century um uh program which actually was nominated for a gramophone award right it's on and, the list and which i thought it was a great program but i didn't particularly think the execution went as well as it could have mm. so i don't know yeah and the gramophone wound up um you know, nominated for an award. By the way, that's another thing we're going to talk about the uh, Gramophone Awards uh, this week in a special midweek episode. Okay, yes. that's coming up on. Uh, so look for that on Wednesday night or Thursday morning, I guess, wherever you are in the world. We'll we'll talk about what we thought about all the uh, Gramophone winners and any other recordings on that shortlist we may have heard of. So that's coming up this week. Okay, his accompanist on this album is William Christie, the American harpsichordist and the Baroque. Um, orchestra conductor christie has been conducting music and uh playing continuo for around 50 years a little more than 50 years and he was um he was he was in there right at the beginning of the whole baroque um unknown composer revival and he's uh played a very large role in um resurrecting some old french operas and composers this is somebody who really knows his stuff and he's, they're kind of generation to some, meaning like generations, different generations in this case, because, uh, Langlois de Swart is very young. And William Christie's in, is, you know, reaching his, uh, later years now. He's, um, I don't know how old he is. I don't want to say, I don't want to guess. Anyway, this is on the Harmonia Mundi label. It's called generation sonate pour violon et clavecin for violin and harpsichord. All right. Sonatas by Jean-Baptiste Senaillet and Jean-Marie Leclerc, so it's all French composers. Now, it doesn't mean it's all going to sound French. I'll get into that in a moment, because there was a lot of Italian influence in this music at that time. Italians were everywhere in Europe at this time, like, kind of making their musical influence known, because they really started the whole Baroque uh, thing, and uh, as, as it traveled, so did they. There was a lot of work for them. Okay. So when I listened to this album, which I really enjoyed a lot because it's Baroque and it's got great playing and it's uh, really interesting music that I hadn't heard before. Um, I listened to this over the course of several mornings. There's nothing I like better than to hear Baroque music in the morning. And once the morning was wearing on, I turned it off because i didn't want it to lose its magic (laughs) so this took me about three or four mornings to get through no problem you could easily sit through it in a single listen well i don't know about sit through it but you can definitely have it on while you're kind of doing whatever you're doing and it it won't distract you but it is interesting to listen to as well oh i actually have william christie is i wrote this down 76 years old now and uh he's been conducting Brooke music for over 40 years i said 50 but um Man, he's getting towards 50 I think. Okay so um, f- this this music from this era in the baroque, these are two French composers and um, in both cases, and especially in Cl- in you know, Saint-Aille, Saint-Aille, uh his um, music is a combination of sort of French dance movements with italian sort of harmony and you know, at the time and rhythm so it's got this bright harmony with these kind of so- softer sort of um french melodies and um sort of ry- rhythmic kind of patterns and uh so we hear that combination there leclerc actually sounds a lot more italian than senai does um because he's he had italian teachers and i think he really took to that style we'll get to that in a moment all right so they start out here with a one movement uh work by leclerc sonora Sonata in E minor Um, It's only one movement It's um, three minutes long, it's very short And the first thing you notice is that William Christie's sound He has this really light sounding Mm chimey Instrument, it's really beautiful Just really, just right away You just kind of want to sink into this sound Okay, of course recorded very closely It has to be, I think he's playing very quietly Actually, but the mic is Always uh, placed very close to the harpsichord Again, it wouldn't sound like this in a concert hall I got the feeling um, on
1: this that it, it actually sounds like it might not be as close as most of the harpsichord recordings. Um,
0: right. That's but, probably how this sound kind of emerged. It's, it probably is a little further away than the mic yeah, in this case. Uh,
1: it sounded to me more like when I've heard harpsichord, you know, in a room. And because yeah. um, you know, some of those uh, recent harpsichord recordings, the the mic is so close, the recording actually gets pressurized. And right. uh, you, you're listening to it, you're like, wow.
0: But it, it has like an impact, it, you know, yeah, kind of like, Whoa.
1: But here, um, yeah. I think it sounds further away and it's great because uh, uh, the violin is played so delicately and yeah. uh, lightly that um, they maintain the balance, but that overall sort of um, uh, lightness yeah. to it yeah. uh, is one of the things I noticed right away. And of course, this recording is extremely clear. Uh-huh. Yeah, and, especially uh, on else? the
0: harpsichord. I was really like amazed by that there seems to be no kind of room echo sort of obscuring the uh the the notes that the harpsichord is playing. And it does, you're right, it does sound like it's recorded far away because once uh, the violin gets going, you almost don't notice the harpsichord so much. It's there making its impact, but you're not really focusing right. on it. You really It just sounds very natural. Right? The violin is right up front. Um Svart has a lot of not a lot of, a bit of room echo on his instrument. It's not a very dry sound at all. And he's got this very sweet, light tone. And I think what was a, a weakness on that Proust album, because he played lightly and I think you needed more passion and sound, you know, you know, that's being, um, going out. What I thought was a weakness on that album is really a strength on this one. Cause, uh, he, he, he just sounds fantastic with the harpsichord. He's, he's got, he's got a lot of room for expression. Yeah. His phrasing and, uh, is really. Really, he's awesome. got really beautiful phrasing as well so this is him sounding his best he's got this really sweet tone okay it's got very new kind of like uh, james ennis but he's uh he's much quieter okay i have that he shapes these phrases sensitively and you can tell he's very at home in this sort of music uh the first work is very slow and sensitive uh the interest is all in the violin and it has a really pretty melody so the first um jean-marie leclerc work uh the next track we get to uh, Jean Baptiste Senaille, and this is his uh, this is the first four movement sonata that we're going to hear, and we're going to hear a lot of those sonata in minor, Opus four number five. Uh, this starts with a slow movement. It's really odd. He starts a lot with slow movements, and then the second movement will be the fast one. So it's like the uh, first movement acts as an introduction to the main theme of the second movement they were separating movements for this eventually these would all be built into a single movement even in as late as um composers like beethoven so you can kind of you can hear like the early uh stages of that um that form here um i have here that um the allegro the corrente corrente which is an italian which is a french dance sorry uh, which it dances with a comparatively manic energy the difference between the speeds of these two movements is really uh pretty extreme um it releases the drama created by the darkening chords of the first movement the the largo movement uh, this is the way they've interpreted this work but it sounds really good and it really draws you in a nice bright violin sound third movement is a saraband and it's, you know listed in italian sarabanda which kind of Indicates Senaye's kind of Italian training there. Um, so you know, this softens his tone here, he gets a beautiful sound, and um, he plays these arpeggiated chords that he 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 kind of spreads them out almost like he's kind of like spreading butter on bread. It's it's really nice, <laughs> he he does a lot of really nice things. It's it it. it you have to hear it to understand what i'm talking about it's kind of there's it's nicely uh like it's played legato and it just it sounds really um maybe it's pate it maybe it's a pate yeah know, maybe that's what he's thinking of right <laughs> oh boy okay christy's playing is very quiet and so you almost don't notice him I mean, you know he's there because he's playing the continuo and i think that's his um style i couldn't imagine him like playing a solo harpsichord recital somehow because i feel like he's he's so used to accompanying the orchestra, yeah. you know, from, you know, right. and you, you sort of do that subtly and quietly. And I think he's, he's bringing that here too. Yet he's, uh, he's, he's so tasteful and, um, you really just appreciate his presence. This is someone who really, uh, is an expert at this sort of music, especially in the French repertoire, because he's, um, he, he works specifically in French, in American, you know, kind of, taking up all these i mean he moved i guess uh i guess he did all this in france but he he uh brought a lot of french rep, french works back into the repertoire yeah he's and uh we have an allegro movement dance like and lively okay and that's out of that movement we get another senai a sonata senaille sonata in um coming up sonata in g minor okay and, and this one pretty much goes the same way um I do like the way Desvart spreads out the notes he holds. Like whenever he has like a long note to play, he'll kind of attack it quietly and then slowly crescendo on it. And uh, he does that in the uh, fourth movement, Gavotte, here. It's really nice. Um, There are all these little touches that they'll, that you don't hear throughout the recording. Like they'll reserve them for different pieces. And I'll try to point them out as we go through. It's pretty. It's pretty nice. They have a they have some tricks that they spread out through the recording. You don't hear them again and again, so the ear never gets tired. That's another um sign of really good music making in this sort of repertoire. Okay, we hear another sonata um Sonata next um this is uh Sonata in D major opus 3 number 10. Uh this starts with a French overture type opening. And uh then it follows an allemande, which is um another f- sort of French dance German style. French dance. Okay. Um, Louis Fourteenth was really into these. That's why you hear them so often in this music. Um, I like the pointed rhythms provided by to here. Like he kind of like tapers off at the end and like ugh, lifts off, you know, like it's, it's, I, I think of that as what a pointed rhythm is. Uh, musicians are locked in at the rather brisk speed in the uh, Alamanda. It's pretty fast for an Allemande. usually because I think of box music, the Alamanda, then there's a courant and the courant is usually faster than the Allemand. this one sounds very fast the third movement is a Gavotta, which is another dance um labeled a fetuoso an interesting you know label for a Gavotta, which is a you know dance this is a fairly slow movement there's something really interesting in this at the around the halfway point of this movement the harmony sounds like it switches to a mode it sounds almost like arab but really you know took me by surprise mm. you never really expect to hear such things in uh, baroque music and i really wonder what what he was thinking here it's really odd um it in okay so you can hear that in the third moving around halfway through listen to the change you'll notice the change it doesn't really sound like a major or minor uh key anymore uh christy actually punctuates this change with a lot of rumbling in the lower range of the harpsichord he's kind of like Kind of crashing down on the low strings. And I also like the way in this movement, uh, Christie thumps out the last tonic note in the bass. It's kind of thump, it, you know, giving a sense of finality to that movement, which was a little odd. Uh, the, mm-hmm. There's also a fourth movement coming after that, Allegro Sigh. Uh, this sounds like a country dance in real contrast to what we just heard. It's got sort of a rustic melody in the violin and um, repeated chords on the harpsichord. And there's some Vivaldi-like figuration about a minute in that kind of reminded me of the summer, the faster summer um, movements of the Four Seasons of Vivaldi. It actually sounds like a reference to it, although I'm not sure about that. But they probably would have known these works by this point. I think this was the later, the the, it's the early to mid 1700s, and Vivaldi's works came out in the very early 1700s. Um, Whether well, or were published then, and they really made their way around Europe. Okay, finally we get a multi movement sonata by Jean Marie Leclerc, sonata in A major, Opus One, Number Five. Um, yeah, This one starts interestingly with uh, accentuated violin arpeggiated chords and uh, harpsichord chords as well, played slowly, but it's a, got a great effect. Uh, it, the, the melody the, the accompaniment makes the melody sound really dignified because it's sort of like supporting it almost like a, on pedestals or something like that it's really a nice sound um, the second movement is a sarah bond beautifully played standard speed um, and crispy has this lovely chiming harpsichord in the background he really doesn't stand out but he's worth listening to in this movement if you just kind of think about it in the this, this track 15 on the disc if you want to go to it right away. And the last uh, movement is a giga, which is a lively dance, and it is, of course, played presto. And we get the being giga rhythm after the brief introduction. Okay, the carefree rhythm of the dance is well-captured between these two. Track 17 is an improvised prelude by Desvarte himself. It starts as a slow introduction and then builds to a a perpetual motion rhythm. It kind of reminded me of the opening of Arvo um work fratres the um the version for violin and piano where the violin is just doing this sort of perpetual motion thing i was kind of thought that was pretty interesting um it's about two minutes long this introduction it's nice and it goes into the next senae sonata c minor opus one number five um this one this particular work i told you earlier that this duo has um some tricks up their sleeve and this whole work, all four movements of it, sound have a different approach than the all the other works on the disc. They really interpret this one. They don't just really play it like in a Baroque style. They kind of have decided that they want to Put a certain thing across. For example, Christie starts the the uh, work with a broken chord and plays the entire opening theme by himself. The violin introspectively picks up the theme on the repeat, and the third time the theme is heard, it's played heavily and dramatically with the sound dragged out of the violin, and Christie crashing down on the harpsichord. Now, th- none of this is in the score. Uh, Baroque scores were pretty um sparsely marked, but uh, uh, they so they're really putting their char- character into these. They're sort of making them. St- known, uh, the, the two musicians in this um, particular work. This leads into the Corrente, which is normal speed. Uh Svarte uses a pretty heavy tone here. And Christie is in the bass end of his instrument much of the time. In the Gavalta third movement, Christie opens with a gentle music box sound, total contrast to what he had in the uh, previous movement. And the violin's melody is repetitive and appealing. It kind of, you hear it so many times, it sticks in your head. Nice muted strings on the harpsichord to end the movement. Okay, this is another interpretative move by Christie, because he hadn't, he just sort of took out the mute um, more than halfway through the recording. So we get a nice little surprise that wakes us up a little bit, and so we just get a little, you know, wow, okay. And then there's a, it ends with a jig. Lively, very nice. Okay, next Leclerc, sonata in F major, opus 2, number 2. Christie still has the chiming sound here, which it kind of sounds like a music box. I really like this particular sound of the uh, harpsichord. The violin comes in with a melody. The second movement, Allegro Ma Poco, Christie is very good, outlining chords and leaving the Suarte in the spotlight. And I liked his subtlety a lot here, Christie's subtlety. The third movement, Adagio, is very brief, and uh, just leads into the Allegro Manon troppo. This has a nice echo effect in it, taken up subtly by Desvarte. He kinda will soften his tone to let you know that the echo is there, but he doesn't do it every time. He really keeps the variety going, and keeps the ear interested. Um, Christie again switches to the mute at the end, and uh, that's a nice, another nice little surprise. Um, I love Desvarte's arpeggiating figuration at about the three minute mark coupled with christie's fine chordal mist at that point the theme cordial repeats mist. once more yeah chordal mist I I like that. It kind of it's not clear sounding it's sort of you don't yeah. really hear all the individual notes it kind of sounded almost like a like a gentle spray so i, I wrote mm. mist mist that listen to it it's in um let's see listeners want to hear that it is the fourth movement um let's see at, the, at about the three-minute mark of the fourth movement, you can hear what I'm talking about. This is in the right. Leclerc Sonata in F major. That would be track. No, I didn't write these down. 24.
1: There's a lot of tracks on this one. So
0: There are a lot of tracks, but and then again, each of these short works is four movements long. and That's why. Okay, so in sum, most of these works are played for the beautiful Baroque things that they are but there are a few interpretative effects where the musicians let you know that they are making decisions. So they kind of go between the two and just to keep things interesting. I would have welcomed more um, intrusions of the musicians into this, but no matter. This is a fantastic um, album. Uh, Christie is, as he has always been, an exemplar of taste in this music. I guess that's what you get when you spend your life playing French Baroque music. I mean, we think of taste when we think of the French, at least before the 20th century. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but, um, uh, and he offers you know, now all of our French listeners are going to write in. And, uh, he offers the smart the best possible support. This is an excellent, enjoyable listen all the way through. I loved it. Recommend it for the morning.
1: Yeah, this is a good one. I think when the first few, um, uh, works, they sort of, uh, following a similar pattern, but as the recording goes on, you get some more variety. And, uh, the one thing, that I thought in common with all of these uh, pieces is the sense of rhythmic motion uh, mm-hmm. in them. And uh, the way that uh, these two synchronize uh, is really excellent, you know, uh, with uh, Christy in the supporting role, he's always there and he doesn't stick out, but, you know, he's really creating this um, sort of structure that uh, the violin, uh, locks into exactly and so that rhythmic motion is constantly there but it's tempered by uh, the wonderful phrasing of the violin and uh, so he he goes through these rhythmic pieces but he he kind of makes them all sing and Mm. so they get a real lyrical quality and the sound balance is really excellent uh, and the detail in the recording is a real high degree so even i found i was listening to these in the morning too Uh, kind of as a background at first but i kept getting pulled in because the recording detail is uh, you know at such a high level so this is good and i didn't know these pieces and uh, there's still always more in this kind of baroque uh, repertoire to explore so i can recommend uh, this for any lovers of baroque music
0: right that rhythmic uh um, element that you're talking about it comes from the fact that uh, a lot of these movements are based on you know Baroque era dances dances yeah yeah, yeah. so they um, they get this they, motion they, and they really so. point that but yeah. then again you'll get a lot of um, Baroque uh, musicians that don't really highlight that and yeah. these two do and I really appreciated that a lot I in fact I really like it when there's a spring to the rhythm in Baroque mm-hmm. music because I think there should be I mean these people danced a lot and they didn't dance like we do of course these dances were highly stylized and you normally wouldn't touch... You, you. It would be partner dancing, but you wouldn't really be touching your partner when you do it. You'd just face them. Right. You know? And I don't think you can get uh, too close to the ladies back then either anyway because they were wearing those big hoop skirts and, uh, you know, you, you, you couldn't really get, get too close mm. when, when they were wearing those. Probably not, yeah. Although apparently the Saraband was a was apparently a sexy dance, at least the way it was done in Spain. And it was actually banned at one point. Oh, what a bummer! Yeah, huh? how sexy could it have been? Yeah. Wait, imagine if they saw what we were doing today. Imagine if they saw twerking, they'd be <laughs> they'd be horrified. These people. I'm glad there <laughs> was
1: no twerking in the Baroque. That would yeah. make for some awkward movement names, wouldn't it?
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Rondo. Uh, oh, okay. Twerk. Can you imagine? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That this the the whole juxtaposition thing was funny. I've always thought it would be really funny if like, because when when they wanted to um, back in Baroque opera when they wanted to um indicate that someone was like a god or some really powerful person, that role would usually go to the castrato because they had these voices that were almost otherworldly. They they were they were, <laughs> they were sexless. So there was something really odd about them that captivated people. And I almost kind of think that today we don't have that sound. You have uh counter tenors, but they don't sound the same because they're singing in that falsetto range, but they don't have the the power of singing from their um, you know, um diaphragm like right. the Castrati did. They had this real power and they had this high, almost woman's voice, but it wasn't quite a woman's voice. Um But so these so we don't really get that effect anymore. I always thought that, you know, if you could just insert some like 12-tone singing in the middle of like a baroque piece that would <laughs> would startle everybody to thinking, "Oh, this is somebody from you know, mm. another another era or another planet yeah, or something." Another planet.
2: Yeah.
0: Anyway, highly recommend and get that one. Everybody give it a listen. It'll make you happy. Okay, next we have um a vocal disc. I'm going to go for this one next, and I have been practicing this name, the pronunciation of this name all week long. you ready? Here we go. This is the result of all my practice. Katejina. Oh, I messed it up. Katejina Konejikova. And you pronounce the K. Konejikova. She's a Czech soprano, and the album is called Fidile, which is the name of a song by. um, It's apparently a, a woman's name. It's a song by. Um, is it Henri Dupac? I forgot. I think it is. Yeah, I think it is. Yeah, Henri Dupac. It is, right? I get confused between him and Reynaldo Hahn sometimes. Anyway, she's a Czech soprano, and uh, the first thing I well, the first thing I noticed about this was the wonderful program that she's singing. I really wanted to hear this because I just loved the program. It had um, some Ravel and uh, the Henri DuPac songs, which are very popular with sopranos, and then it had two um, works I'd never heard before: uh, Magic Bohuslav Martinu, yeah, um, Magic Nights by Bohuslav Martinu. And these were set to Chinese texts, which were popular at the time, at the beginning of the 20th century. Um, Gustav Mahler also set his um, Das Lied von der Erde texts from the same set. They were originally in Chinese, but here they, they got translated into all of these um, European languages. And here they're sung in Czech. So somebody, somebody in Czech. Chinese in to the check, Czech,
1: that's
0: a, yeah, it's a tough I, one I guess too. it would have been called <laughs> Bohemia then. um, yeah. they, um he he's considered to be a Czech composer though, but uh, somebody in Bohemia knew Chinese, so they translated it into Czech. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm gonna give the I'm not gonna give the Czech names. I can't even um, pretend to uh, pronounce Czech. I don't, really don't know how it works. So I'm gonna give the English names of these works here. Okay, one thing I want to say about the album cover is um, this this woman she's really beautiful, and she's just smiling all over this album. Everywhere you look. Uh, she's got this really beautiful smile, uh, very photogenic. I have to say, and she's kind of looking like she's uh, the the front cover of her. She looks like she's being pleasured, actually. Kind wow. <laughs> of. Oh.
1: This is a super yeah. fun label, right?
0: It's on the super fun label, which is a yeah. Czech label, and um, I have to I say, didn't, uh, I didn't get as much pleasure
1: from this as it looks like she has on the cover. Um,
0: well, I have to say, neither did I. In fact, uh, this this uh, album was a bit of a disappointment let me explain why now this is it's this well it's it's a few things it's the singer's fault but not the voice she's got a really beautiful voice but again this is sort of like uh, I thought the Lisa Davidson album that we reviewed weeks ago where I don't think the repertoire is suited to her voice now I imagine that she programmed this because she probably loves these music as do I And uh, that kind of um, got me going here. Now the Martino works are called Magic Nights, three songs to Chinese texts, and um, so she's opening with music by one of her compatriots. A really good thing to do. I always like when musicians do that, kind of give you. I like the orchestration on these
1: works. It's pretty interesting. I did too,
0: and not only that, it's I like the orchestration. The orchestration was clearly audible although it kind of sounded a bit veiled nevertheless Mm. it kind of came through there was some sort of gauze it's it's atmospheric
1: more than it is detailed here yeah
0: Yeah. um but there was the detail came out um on the recording The, the problem with these works though was or it could have been just the performance of the recording is that i Or or the Soprano's voice is that I kept listening to the orchestra. The orchestra was really where the interest in these three works was. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, the first one, the first piece is called "In a Foreign Land." Okay, we're talking about the Martineau works now. Okay, Um, this has a a really pretty string opening. Uh, The voice intones the opening lines. I'm still into this at this point. Uh, there's a lot of inventive orchestration, like I said, we hear top notes ring out from the soprano she 's got an excellent, firm tone and a really good vocal technique. I kept feeling like I was noticing the uh, breath supporting the voice like I, I could actually hear that this woman was uh, you know had had a firm technique, and I appreciated that. Okay, the music seethes forward like Wagner. I guess Wagner was um, a big uh, influence at the time, certainly in Mahler's music, but here in Martinus as well. Um, There's gorgeous details in the orchestration, and my ear kept leaning towards that. The orchestra sounds huge. It sounds like a really big group of people. The soprano, though, has a big voice, and she's clearly audible through all this, so no problem there. Um, Track two was Untouched by Spring, the second... um, song in this this set of three by Martinu. This has a rich full bass in the recording, and the vocals were impressive, but the orchestral detail is what draws the ear. Um, so the orchestra is almost upstaging her, I feel like, in these works. You know, I kinda was so fascinated by the orchestration that I wasn't really listening to her. Um, the Mysterious Flute is the third um, and final um, movement. This has a sort of charming Orientalist opening kind of sounds like Chinese folk music. Um, it's warm with wonderful percussive chimes. Um, so I thought at this point after hearing this that Kanajikova was taking um, a backseat to the composer and his orchestration, like she was like presenting. Martino. Um, and I said, I thought that was a bold move. Good for her, making available a little-known Czech work to those of us outside of the Czech Republic. Okay, but then we get into the French works. And these require a sort of sensitivity that this um, composer, this this uh, soprano, didn't demonstrate here. Now, I've mentioned in the uh, Lise Davidson um, reviews, when we did talked about that album, that there are two kinds of sopranos. There's the uh, particle soprano, particle voice soprano and the wave voice soprano, sort of like light, you know? Light can be a particle or a wave, so can the soprano voice. The uh, particle soprano voice... Uh, is about detail, and it kind of shapes the voice to fit the words and really um, uh, does that. And the wave-voiced um, soprano uh, projects this powerful soprano tone to the ends of the universe, as you hear in a lot of Strauss, Lieder, and in Wagner. And uh, I would say that uh, Konejikova is a wave soprano. This is This is a pretty big voice. And these works sort of call for a particle soprano. <laughs> Okay. Uh, the first work is a very popular, Henri Dupac, we have four works by him. The first is a very popular, L'Invitation au Voyage. This is a poem by Charles Baudelaire, and a pretty well-known one, and this is probably the best-known setting of this poem in classical music. It's been recorded often in recent years. Um, I noticed all the climaxes in this work. Um. She does. She, she lets out this high ringing tone for all the climaxes, and it's always in the same shading. And this is kind of what I wanted to change. I wanted variations in that, and I didn't get it. I just felt like I kept getting these big ringing tones when the crescendos came up. It's a nice tone, though. Um, it didn't come across... This, this didn't come across as special. There are other recordings of this, if we compare her, that I rather thought were more sensitive. Uh, again, the orchestra shines... Rich detail comes through, especially in the final bars when we hear the harp's gentle melody piercing through the texture. So the orchestra on this recording is absolutely fantastic, the orchestra playing. Next uh, a work that isn't connected um, to the previous one, uh, La Vie Intérieure. This is um, by Henri Dupac. Um, it's another Baudelaire setting. and. Um, yeah, I, feel, I get the intention that Kanadzikova is really just singing through these songs. You know, she's kind of hitting all the notes, but she's not really interpreting them. She's kind of, you know, she's going loud and soft. But even there, there's not all that much variation. She's not really giving these songs any kind of special profile. Um... She, she doesn't seem inspired by them, although, and it seems like she probably programmed them because she liked them. The um, I said that this uh, recording sounds very professional, but not magical, and I really wanted that soprano magic here. Uh, she doesn't do much to shade the tone of her voice either. It's really just piano or forte or somewhere in between. Okay, so she's really depending on that for the expression, and I feel like um, other sopranos have done a lot more to really make these um, songs special memories for me. Uh, Track six, Fidile, this is the title track of the album. The text is by Le Comte de Lille, a poet from that era, the early 20th century, late 19th century. And really, same as above. Uh, Here I notice that the soprano is rather back in the mix. And when she's singing softly, the orchestra actually threatens to overpower her, although this never happens. Surprising for such a big voice. I'm kind of wondering what's going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, the orchestra keeps grabbing the spotlight from her, though, as they did in the uh, Martinu works, at least to my ears. Um, I, I, maybe the engineer's at fault here, too. He may have overcompensated. Um, and I, ca- I made the comment here that she'd probably be good in Strauss or Wagner. Uh, she does sing um, Czech opera, of course, like Janacek. And I've heard those operas, and I could hear that her voice would be very well suited to those. I, I should probably um, go listen to her in some of that. Okay, next we have Chanson Triste, jean Le text, Texte, same. All right, now here's where I wanted to hear this. Um, we have uh, two works by Maurice Ravel, two multi-movement works. Um, two works that I really love. Now, the first set is called Cinq Melodies Populaire Grec, which means Five Popular Greek Melodies. And this is um, better known in its version for voice and piano. And here it's for... Um, um, voice and orchestra. I'm not sure that Ravel orchestrated these. I imagine he must have, um, but I didn't, I couldn't find any information on that and really look too hard though. But I like these a lot more in their more sensitive version for voice and piano. Um, I feel like the orchestra is a little too thick here. And these, um these songs come across really charming when they're sung only with the piano. Here though, the first uh, Chanson de la Marie, the, the, uh, the, uh song to the bride um it's a it's i guess it's a man singing to a woman um or maybe it's the opposite no i don't really know okay the um maybe it's the bride singing to the groom uh she doesn't really capture it there's there's a real joy in this um this um character this man is getting married and he's singing to the bride how, how wonderful it's going to be to get married i listened to um the first recording I ever heard of this was by Christopher Trakas, and he actually sang these in Greek. Here they are sung in French, and they usually are sung in French. Um, uh, Christopher Trakas' recording of this was absolutely fantastic, and I still have that in my head years later. But again, Kanadzikova just sings through these. and um, Maybe she had to sign a prenup or something. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, okay. she, she yeah. didn't really appreciate that very much. <laughs> But the orchestra also—it's still a too thick, thickly orchestrated. I didn't—I didn't really like these arrangements much. Um, next, là bas, là bas, vers l'église, down there by the church. Uh, I just wrote these random notes. She's not capturing the idiom. So the, these works—I don't know—I didn't really like them in the orchestrated version, and I didn't really feel like she caught the idiom of these of these works—the the Greek idiom or the French uh, sense. That Ravel put in French is a, Ravel. He's a French composer, but he's actually Basque, so he's got sort of an odd sort of take on these things. Um, the problem with these is all these songs are pretty joyous. Uh, "Quel galant me comparable?" The tenth, um you know, what what soldier is comparable to me? Where the um, the soldier is really cocky and sort of uh, parading around trying to win the hearts of these women. She doesn't really sound terribly cocky in this. Um, <laughs> a particular song it's it's really charming when you hear it um played um you know in a, you know when you ha- you hear it sung you know really sensitively that way um she subdues her voice for chanson de Cuyayuse Quille, de lentisque um the collectors of um i don't know what lentisques are Oh well, um, the voice is a bit more subdued here, but not much more from the previous track. And tout gay means everybody's happy, you know, every all happy. Um, the joy doesn't come across, so this was a real bust for me. All right, tracks thirteen to fifteen, Shahrazad, one of my favorite vocal works ever, and uh, this is a real. Um, th- these were written originally for the uh, orchestra and the the voice, so this was the what i wanted to hear and again the orchestra shines um and uh in the first track the first um work um in the first movement i should say azi meaning asia um kenajikova lightens her tone and delivers a pretty good performance of this subtle work i think she was really inspired here i think she liked um imagining herself in all these um fantastic locations that the uh in in asia that the uh song um you know, discusses. In fa- in fact, I should mention this whole um CD is programmed with music about exotic, faraway places. So that's really her theme on this album. And I'm not convinced that all of these um songs um inspired her. I think this one did though. It sounds pretty good. Although again, there are better performances. Uh, she doesn't have many vocal colors, but she's able to put this particular work across. Um. I was pretty happy with this one and Ravel's magnificent orchestral scoring is well articulated here. Um the second movement, a little shorter, la flûte enchantée. This is a fairly sensitive um piece. Um it's sort of about a it's about a woman who's um she's got this older sort of master it could be her father or it could be um her husband. Um her older husband as happened often in those days. And she's got a lover out in the street playing the flute to her. Um, um, so this is supposed to, be, this should be a really teasing, sort of almost coy, sort of um, vocal, and we don't really get that here. Good orchestral playing though. And uh, the last track, "Indifférente," is about uh, a boy passing by, and it, this could be a, um, it could be a woman singing this. Um, to this boy passing by who she desires, or it could be a man, a, you know, he's a young boy, so it could be like a sort of ancient Greek type of homosexual sort of uh, desire this guy's having. Um, the orchestral, the orchestra creates a nice languor here, so they're really doing all their part. Um, again, the same vocal tone. We just hear, We've been hearing this for the whole recording so far, and I'm just getting tired of it. I just wanted her to alter her sound a little bit to just make these songs, you know, really come alive. Um, the charge of erotic desire invoked by the text and orchestra coloring aren't really reached by the voice. And the listener should get a sense of opportunity missed at the end of this piece. But here it just ends. You don't really get the sense of opportunity missed when the boy just walks away and the um, the man or woman singing doesn't uh, get their desire. I don't know. Anyway, one more track, Karol Zimanofsky, another song I was completely unfamiliar with. He's a Polish composer, and this uh, text is sung in Polish. The text is by Stanislav Wisplanski. I hope I said that close to correctly. Um, This starts out a lot like the Ravel works we just heard. It's very sensual, with a lot of orchestra coloring. Um, um, This is a work, I had never heard this before... And this particular performance kind of ruined this piece for me. <laughs> so I had to hear somebody else sing it. Maybe um, there are all these subtle combinations of consonants in Polish. And if you if you hear Polish songs, you know, and good singers can. Well, she is a good singer. I don't want to say she's not, but I didn't really hear all the those those wonderful consonants. Really, they, it kind of gets uh, wiped away by this recording or by her performance. I'm not really sure which. Um, the the recording is sort of veiled, and it wipes all the, those little subtleties away. Um, I suspect that Knejikova is a soprano that's more comfortable in repertoire that requires her voice to soar, and I think of the four last songs by Strauss. I bet she'd be good in those. Um, she needs the flexibility and subtlety, and there isn't much of that. That's really my whole... Yeah, I didn't really like this album much. I can't really... Uh... I wrote a summary, but I've already said everything in this here. Um, I thought this was rather disappointing, actually.
1: Well, you know how I generally feel about um, mm. soprano uh, works. I it, It's really hard for me to uh, go through a whole recording of oh. a- any Soprano. <laughs> it just mm. hits that button on my forehead, and I felt that was hit <laughs> a lot with her. You know, she has a really strong voice.
0: We got to get that, you a recording of soprano with violin accompaniment. Oh, geez. I <laughs> don't you
1: know what it is. You would think by, by this age, my high frequency listening would have uh, gone down enough that it wouldn't bother me anymore. But um, now, yeah, that so,
0: piccolo still pierces my ears. I don't know. Um,
1: but I did actually, on your recommendation, I did compare this with uh, the other uh, Ravel recording, the uh, what is it, uh, Fatima Said?
0: Oh, that was um, fantastic! We'll yeah. be talking about that on Wednesday in the Gramophone yeah. Awards podcast.
1: And, and so, compared to that, I thought uh, two things. I thought the uh, Saitz was much more uh, sort of subtle and with yeah, variation. Yeah, you can hear what I'm talking about. Yeah. How she
0: kind of alters her tone for this for elements of the text. And, it's really I fantastic.
1: Also enjoyed the enunciation more mm-hmm. on that. I thought you know the the words were shaped more to the phrases and. Uh, you know, even though I'm reading along in a translation, it was easier for me to hear uh, you know the uh, the enunciation of the words and different shading going on there. So hmm. um, but anyway,
0: I only we'll listen to more about that. I only listen
1: to soprano Sweet. works when you require them. So
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's sort of why we're doing this podcast. We want we want people. You know, now I know I know he has to listen to the things that I kind of stretching send my boundaries. His way. Yes, that's right. Well, we want to stretch each other's boundaries. That's yeah. right. and we want to stretch your boundaries too, listener. So we hope you are um, um, at least sampling these um, links that we're putting up. Is it musical the yoga
1: for right
0: Lim- limbering?
1: Your auditory systems. It's a nice metaphor.
2: Yeah.
0: Okay, my last um, pick for this week was uh, a set of a uh, disc of chamber works by Nino Rota, the Italian composer, twentieth century. Hey, this now, one Rota- was good
1: flexibility because I didn't know you know yeah. his music other than his film music, but I was You're stretched right. in a good way.
0: Yeah. Yeah, me neither in fact rota's best known for his music um from fellini's films and of course the famous uh, godfather um theme music and uh that's him right yeah yeah, yeah Nino rota because i get him sometimes confused with other guys okay but he uh, it turns out he was um he was a highly touted classical music composer especially when he was younger he was supposed to um rescue italian music from wherever it had um uh, gone to after the nineteenth century ended after Verdi and Puccini it was all opera and um he, he there 's an interesting story about him he um when he was younger he um was supposed to start setting the um people expected him to set the uh, classical music composing world on fire and he disappeared uh, down south in Italy and reemerged with a an an opera that was in completely in the romantic idiom. This, this comes from the booklet notes. Actually, if you buy the CD, you can read about this. And being that this was the era of Stravinsky um, and Prokofiev and people like that, they, this did not go over well. It sounded very old fashioned. So he and he was also he also took up a lot of um, film music work, even in his earlier days before Fellini was around. And he became known as someone who could who was really sensitive. He could like change his um, style at will but he he had a he had a real kind of sound to himself and it really emerged um later when he wrote for one of his um composition teachers Alfredo Casella his t- two of his um composition teachers were Alfredo Casella and um Ildebrando Pizzetti whose music um sort of disappeared from the repertoire with their deaths but then it's been making a comeback especially in recent years there have been a few releases of their music um on various labels so they're kind of back in action which is very nice and the nice thing about the modern uh world of recording anyway for casella's 60th birthday he wrote a piece that's on this um album i gotta see which one it is hold on called piccola offerta musicale a small musical offering. And it's got this sort of a uh, Prokofiev sort of sound to it, but this really kind of um, made people think, oh, he's back and he's going to start uh, really, you know, taking over. Um, it's It's got this um, high manic energy to it. Actually, this particular piece, let me just talk about it here now that I'm on it. Um, this particular piece um, it has a somber intro followed by I called it gamboling winds. It kind of reminded me of a horse, kind of had like a pastoral melody to it. Mm. I imagined a horse in a field enjoying himself or herself. Um, It sounded kind of like an offering to some pagan god of spring. It's got high energy. It's cheerful. Um, The slow introduction returns near the end. And then with a brief return to the frolic, the piece ends. I thought this was really charming. Um, Which we'll one talk, is this now you're talking about? This was the sixth track, the uh, Piccolo Offerta Oh
1: Musicale. yeah, yeah, this one. Yeah, I like um, this one has a lot of uh, different moods in it. It goes from Great. lush to spirited, and yeah. Uh, yeah, I really enjoyed this one. the The part writing and arranging is excellent, and I I like the horns set against the woodwinds. In yeah. This too, it's a nice Yeah. They, they
0: sort of traded off quite a bit. Yeah. The, the horn... Th- there's one horn, right? And It kind of yeah. has its own sort of... Um, it has a whole different quality and character than the, the rest of the uh, yeah. ensemble. Yeah. It's
1: doing its own thing while the, while the woodwinds kind of dance and you get this kind of uh, sustained yeah. horn thing. That was nice. A
0: really interesting piece. And he wrote that for his teacher's like 60th birthday. And um, this really brought... Him, it was it 60th or 70th birthday. I got to check the booklet, but I'll, I'll check later. Um, this really brought him back into the fold and he started writing some chamber music but of course and other music he wrote another opera and um, but he um, he wound up becoming famous for his film music mostly he, he did a lot of that probably made a lot All more right.
1: bucks uh, on that film music than he did for right. his chamber well, music well
0: there isn't yeah. really much music you know unless you're like a big time composer um, let me talk about this disc it's on the Alpha Records label one of my favorite labels, by the way, up there with Hyperion. They have wonderful cover designs, too. This one has um, a woman sort of at the top of a, an outdoor staircase, it looks like, kind of leaning on this um, balcony, you know, kind of looking down. It's kind of a nice image. And just check that out. Um, and this, one of the things that drew me to this is the, are the uh, soloists, or the chamber players on it. They're all or most of them are big-name soloists. We have Emmanuel Pahoud Pahoud on flute, Uh, Paul Meyer on clarinet. These are really famous soloists, actually. Eric Lesage on piano, who often plays with Pahud. Daishin Kashimoto on violin, Joaquin Riquelme Garcia on viola, Aurelien Pascal on cello, Claudio Bohorquez on cello, on some other tracks, Olivia double bass, Francois Meyer, Oboe, Gilbert Audin, Bassoon, and Benoit de Bassoni on horn. And they all sort of alternate on this recording. Um, if I had to describe this album in one word, that word would be caffeinated. I imagine that Nina Rota must have gone to the, the local... Um, cafe, what Italians call the bar, in the morning, and drank about five espressos, and then started writing all this music. It's all really high energy, sort of reminiscent of the energy in Prokofiev's earlier works, when he was the enfant terrible of uh, European music in his younger days in the 1920s. Um, <laughs> Italians like their morning coffee. All right, anyway... The first, I, re- um, I wrote
1: um overall yeah. playful sense of his music yeah. it's uh, you, you get a feeling that he's really having fun uh, right. writing these these lines and uh, the the sense of I don't know it's it's not only motion but it's sort of change of direction. he he seems to be able to change things up at will and and so you get a lot of you know different scenes that sort of you know turn on a dime and change. To something different and that's all part of the having fun uh of yeah. his music it's not like he's seems to be so set into one direction with any of his compositions um they they enjoy a little detours and uh maybe right. that comes from his film writing experience you know having mm-hmm. to sort of suddenly change to a scene and create a new mood he just seems really good at that skill and so he uses it a lot in his compositions and that makes them seem to you know you, you almost get the sense not of the musicians having fun but his sort of uh self joy maybe in actually you know composing these things with a new idea that suddenly takes you to a different place and i i like that sense it seems like a, f- a freshness in that music
0: yeah it, it's really fresh music it actually reminded me a little bit of those like bugs bunny cartoons like the music in right, those. right, who, right. Who, who did those um the name isn't coming to me right now oh but, yeah uh, I hate hate to not give credit Mm because, but the the, the way they'll stop on a dime and change and they're just hyperactive as far as the, um, the speeds go. They're really almost like, you know, they're very much a 20th century kind of sensibility of like, you know, the world speeding up or sort of Mm -hmm. something like that. Um, yeah, I thought you know, caffe- caffeinated. Also, um, if if he was American, if he were American, I would have uh, claimed that he ate a lot of um, that sugary breakfast cereal that we all had when we were children. Right. You know, it's yeah, a good so- thing he was born
1: when he was, because otherwise they would have like filled him up with Ridlin and he would have been oh, writing boy. these long tones and stuff. You know. And stuff.
0: Right, right. He would yeah. sound like Billie Eilish. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I feel. Yeah, I think uh, Ritalin is having a big influence on the music, the pop music we're hearing today. Actually, that's a scary thought. Yeah. Well, I, I, actually, suspect, I actually suspect that the sugary breakfast cereal really was um, what we were hearing in the '70s, '80s, and '90s. <laughs> you know? Could be that'd be an interesting yeah. thesis. You know? I, I was thinking the same breakfast thing. Breakfast foods
1: yeah. and music.
0: Yeah, Bre- Ch- children's breakfast foods and their relation to musical uh, later musical development. No. Mm. anyway let let's get to these works the first work trio for flute violin and piano this is daishin kashimoto on violin emmanuel Baud on flute and eric lesage on piano um <laughs> this is such a lively work uh it, it's almost it almost reminded me of like children screaming in a way at least in the flute because he really he's playing at the high shrieking end of, of the flute here. And Pahoud is really well known for his just beautiful flute tone, but you're hearing this really high piercing sound in this particular work. Um, it reminded me if if you've ever heard Jolivet's work, Chantalinos, it's kind of sounds a bit like that. Um, people who are new to classical music won't know that work either (laughs) because it's a little obscure, but I've heard, I've heard it quite a few times. I like him. Okay, the piano is percussive and plays a lot of repeated notes, and the violin draws the ball across the strings for color. It's like Grr, it's like these sudden like light, you know, the kind of sound that makes lightning in Beethoven's um, you know, pastor, pastoral symphony. Uh, it quiets down after the intro, and becomes a bit spacious and atmospheric, and then the fast session section threatens to come back, but sort of settles into a middle ground. And uh, I like this idea. The ideas on this album—he has a lot of ideas. Yeah. It's one of the things that strikes me about Rota. It seems like and I guess we know that from his film music. Right. But even within the this movement, there are a lot of just new, fresh ideas just that keep coming at you. It's pretty overwhelming in a way. And a little tiring too, because you almost you almost can't catch up because it's all so fast. Um the ideas are clear and very high contrast, all the different sections, and there's nice variety for these timbers. It ends as wildly as it started. We go to the second movement, Andante Sostenuto. This has a plaintive flute melody at the beginning. Uh, The violin and the piano imitate it. Um, The harmonization is really nice in this as well. The work builds to a forte peak about mid-movement. And the flute and violin are both vying for supremacy. Uh, Not all the sounds are very beautiful either. He'll go for some piercing sounds. Rota will. Um, He's going for drama in this piece um he seems to really like that piercing sound that the flute yes. makes yeah that's what i, I,
1: I there, wrote uh for all, all these and well you describe the third in a moment but busy and playful with a mix yeah. of pretty ideas and tension uh just when yeah. you get lulled into the beauty he pushes your button with some of those sounds and uh you, yeah, see you don't get children, too comfortable
0: children playing wildly i think yeah um vivace con spirito. You can just imagine. Allegro vivace con spirito is the third movement. You can just imagine how uh spirited this is going to be. Uh it starts with a fanfare rhythm. Uh the piano plays at a manic speed and the violin and flute sort of swirl around it. Um there's some nice combinations of harmony and timbre in this movement and there are only three instruments, so it's pretty amazing that he's able to uh captivate the ear like that. A pretty exciting movement and for pros to play only, I can't imagine. People picking up this score and reading through this—it sounds yeah. really hard. All right, the next, Walzer sur Nom Bach." This is a solo. These are two solo works for Eric Lesage. and uh, these were apparently um, later used in in a slightly altered form in some Fellini's films. I think it was Casanova. He used he used these two themes. The first one is a uh, called circus waltzer, circus waltz. And it's a manic waltz. Um, Rota seems to like these cartoon speeds here. And um, it has circus themes in it. And I really almost feel like this particular work, if you just isolate it, it sort of sums up Rota's entire style. It's kind of manic. It's got sort of this elegance to it, but also the tawdriness of the, the circus the traveling circus um just all these different sort of um the elegant ballroom so he's he's got one foot in the romantic era you know with the, all that elegance and then there's there's a kind of tawdriness of the traveling circus this uh it's and it's all in the same movement it's pretty amazing um to hear that these two um seemingly opposing styles are like, combined like this the second uh part of this is uh Walter Carillon* carrion and i Calion is um is a bell is a sort of church bells, I guess. They're sort of in a and, you yeah, know, you hear them in a church it's it's sort of like a bell machine, I guess you could call it. And they kind of they're sort of melodic bells. Um the anyway, the carillon in this piece uh sounds like it's broken. you don't hear a carrion, it's the piano, but um the rhythms are interrupted and uh it's got this appealing r- ro- this appealing rhythm and melody um, Rota has an ear for a catchy melody too, and he doesn't give the melody fully fully to you here. There's also a hint of Chopin's minute waltz in this piece, like with the really fast uh scales. Um, it was nice. I think these kind of su- summarize his style. If you really want to know what Nino Rota's music is like, listen to tracks four and five. All right, we've already talked about the piccolo offerta musicale, so I'm going to skip over that to the m- main um piece on this record, the Nonetto. This was written. This was commissioned after he wrote the Piccolo Offerta Musicale. Somebody had commissioned it for their chamber players, and I think he took somewhere around thirty to forty years to complete this. So he, wow. the ensemble that um um it requested it, never got to play it. <laughs> so I hate when that happens, right? Anyway, this um, the musicians on this are Daishin Kashimoto, violin; Joaquin Riquelme Garcia on viola; Claudio Bohorquez on cello; Emmanuel paud on flute; Paul Meyer clarinet; Francois Meyer oboe; Gilbert odin bassoon; Benoit de bossoni horn; and Olivier thierry double bass. No piano on this one. First movement, Allegro. It's got this summary opening there's a big chord and then the oboe gets the first um melody um it's and it's got a motor rhythm which rota seems to like a lot he likes these kind of like rhythms sound like they're being driven by an engine uh the flute again is at its piercing high range um there's some charming melodic moments in this movement as well Second movement, andante has a ghostly opening featuring the oboe again in the melody, and this quickly gets traded around really nice um lovely colors all over you got a nonette and you get everybody trading the melody. you get all these wonderful colors it's really really appealing uh give this movement a listen definitely um everybody in the ensemble gets a solo line in this and uh, it's very it's a very easy movement on the ear. The third movement allegro con spirito is indeed spirited when something is conspirito spirito and rota it's uh, highly spirited (laughs) Uh, (laughs) yeah this one has like uh, a gamboling i use this word gamboling a lot i don't it's not a word i normally use in my regular everyday speech but there's a kind of horsiness to this music (laughs) to his music that it gives me this image of a horse for some reason okay the middle section slows down and gets into some smeary tones from the horn, which I rather enjoyed, like the kind of sound. Um, Rota has a way of combining the circus with the ballroom again, and he does that here. Um, I like the horn's brief lines in this movement a lot, the third movement, so listen to the horn. Uh, The fourth movement, canzone con variazioni, a swaying rhythm supporting a catchy melody, and then the variations kind of they don't really vary the melody as much as they vary that swaying rhythm. Um, it's kind of interesting what he's able to do with it. Um, he changes the rhythmic profile in each variation, and uh, it's it's very creative movement. I really enjoyed this a lot. You'll have to hear it. I can't really um, explain what he does. I could just say the first variation is fast, the second is slower, um, the third takes a high speed. And the 4th starts uh, sul ponticello on the strings, which is kind of an interesting sound. We haven't hadn't heard that yet. Um, and it's accompanied by brief statements from the rest of the orchestra. Uh, the variations collectively give a sense of impending danger, uh, some harrowing experience coming up in the woods ahead. And the 5th uh, variation sounds like a cartoon-paced baroque dance, if you can imagine a baroque dance played at like high speed. Um, the piece ends with the 5th variation. And then the fifth movement, not the piece, I'm sorry, the movement. And then the fifth movement is the last movement, Vivacissimo, very lively. Okay, and this uh, orchestra, again, I used the horse motif. This is, it sounds like a horse galloping for its life. If you know the Earl Koenig song by Schubert, that'll give you an idea of what you're in for here. Um, and that's how it ends. It's uh Quite a work. I like this a lot, and it's it's a good centerpiece for the album as well. He spent a lot of time on it. Um, usually, he because he was being interrupted by film work and things like that. But he he worked really hard to make this, you know, a really good work.
1: Yeah, I felt you can see the the detail in his part writing. Um, you know, each right. instrument is thought out really well, and then the whole arrangement for each of the movements is really expert. And you know, so you can tell that. He was making you know, real, um, I don't know what the word is, uh, but his decisions for which instrument was going to play, which uh, line were really uh, decided and worked out. And then everything fits together really perfectly. And I felt this work and then the falling works to the end of the album are of a different character than the earlier works. Um, I felt the earlier ones maybe were showing a little bit more uh, sort of um, influence of what was going on at the time with you know some more kind of 20th century ideas but i felt the nonetto and then the following works they really the over uh, writing focus is on the sense of melody in these works and so not only these uh sort of uh, Well, integrated parts, but overall, in this work, you can just follow the melodies through each of the movements uh, really well. And then I felt the trio and two preludes that come at the end, so they're really melody-focused, and he's, uh, you know, less sort of um, working on different sort of structures or techniques to incorporate in the compositions rather than just serving, you know, these melodic ideas that seem to be the centerpiece uh, for those. So I think the album actually gets easier to listen to, not that it's all that challenging or, you know.
2: Uh, it's pretty taking... appealing,
0: although. It, it, it's all sort of...
1: it's, it's all quite appealing, but I felt from the Nonetto to the end, the, the appeal for, you know, anyone to enjoy this just increases as the works go on.
0: Right. When you said that, uh, you know, the uh, character, of the album changes, I just kind of made, took a quick look at the years that all these uh, works were composed. And it really, that I guess it has to do with just the, um, the programming because these works w- were written like just really all over the map. They, right. they, they yeah. the, the ending works aren't necessarily late works or anything like that. No. Uh, the I trio, think they may just be different, yeah. you know,
1: different purposes or, you know, what he was writing for. Um, yeah. And, and they just um,
0: organized it in a way that it would kind of have a certain, you know, profile yeah,
1: effect with it.
0: Right. Anyway, we do have the trio, trio for clarinet, cello and piano next. This is Aurelien Pascal on the cello, Paul Meyer on the clarinet and Eric Lesage on the piano. Um, Again, manic ostinato chords in the piano at the beginning and um, the cello and the clarinet solo over it. Or play over it. Uh, the piano gets a florid figuration that the clarinet pulls a melody out of, and then the movement moves between the ostinato and more florid section. It's sort of like two sections I keep repeating. The second movement, Andante, has a very quiet, almost plaintive, you know, sorrowful beginning with mournful clarinet melody, and the movement really stays like that. It's really pretty. You, the second one, know, yeah, it is. It's a little unusual for Rota too. I said uh, it is really pretty. And the third movement is Alegrissimo. He always got to use those extreme <laughs> kind of speeds, which he does again here. Uh, familiar marking, familiar mood, highly positive, upbeat, catchy melody. Um, and this movement moves like a rondo. You get this theme that keeps returning after every departing episode. Um, the opening fast theme returns after slower sweeping sections. Uh, it ends very positively. The last two works are Preludes for solo piano. Um These are actually pretty slow, surprisingly. The uh, first one starts plaintively with an unharmonized melody over arpeggiated bass chords, and the melody moves into the bass as the right hand plays figuration momentarily, then back to the original melody. It's very pretty, and it's under two minutes, as is the final work on the disc, Prelude 2 labeled Allegro ma Espressivo e Delicato. Uh, these are both played by Eric Lesage, of course. Um, this one also has arpeggiated chords with a melody pulled out of it. It just kind of feels like it emerges from the arpeggio. And then there's a contrasting, more still middle section than the opening again, so it's a tripartite form, A-B-A. Again, very pretty and brief at under two minutes. I said that this album was cheerful and summery, and uh the darkest this music meets, reaches is a manic state really it's mm. uh too much coffee. I could just imagine if we had programmed this um, album with last week's um vibraphone jazz disc uh this would have wiped people out it's a It's a wonderful listen, very cheerful, very uplifting and also a bit exhausting really but uh <laughs> it's so um it's so appealing that you almost don't notice that you're tired. I really recommend that everybody hear this. It's really good. That's great playing too.
1: It's good. It's very playful. Um, I like that last play, uh, prelude. The, the harmonies are really lush in it, and I wanted it to yeah. keep going, and then it was over.
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, this is a disc.
0: That's this is an album that's going to reward repeated listenings. I think I'm going to yeah. have to put this in the uh, in the uh, iPod and uh, travel with it a bit. You know, listen to it when I'm on the road.
1: Yeah, I guess becoming a film composer sort of puts a stamp on your career in uh mm. some ways. But this shows that he was you know, able to do a lot of other kinds of things and uh but maybe those film composing skills also helped him uh be able to do a lot of things uh within More one piece versa, of music. Yeah. yeah. Um mm. but uh yeah it's it's really enjoyable and uh, inventive. He's a really inventive, inventive yeah.
0: composer. Yeah. Yeah. All right, and that is it for classical music this week. You have two out of three. Ain't bad. You have some good listens. And, I, you know, give the soprano disc a listen too. Why not? All right. It's jazz time. It's jazz time.
1: And, uh, yeah, this week, the theme, because I have so many things on my list now, I've been able to categorize them. Uh, I had to just to keep straight what, what I have and how I want to present it. So the theme this week is the guitar and um guitar guitar that's right, and although the first one is not uh led by a guitarist, however, it does include uh Bill Forsell whose uh sound and concept puts sort of a defining stamp on anything that he is uh part of I've noticed uh I've
0: noticed know. that too, but I didn't think that was necessarily the case here as as much as it usually is though I don't know.
1: Well, I thought like it sort of plays into uh, the whole concept of this album, which, you know, that's to me, that's what kind of sets this apart. And uh, this is the um, Andrew Cyril Quartet uh, new release, The News on the ECM label, uh, which uh, features uh, Andrew Cyril, the 81 year old drummer. Amazing. Doing pretty well for that age here. Uh, And Bill Fussell on guitar. Uh, David Vareas on piano and synthesizer. And Ben Street on uh, bass. And uh, this is um, the new album that they've released. Uh, Let's see, the last one was on 2016. Uh, That was uh, the Declaration of Musical. Independence. I think a different piano player on uh, yeah. that one, but the that Frizzell was Richard.
0: Street. Richard Tidalbaum was in that, and he died right. of a stroke in April 2020. So they needed a new mm. pianist, and they got David Virelles, who I think um, changed the. I, I haven't heard that album, so okay. I gotta. I think he changed the profile of quite a bit, though. He's a Cuban pianist. He doesn't really. Yeah. He's, he's not really playing particularly Cuban things, but he has a big personality. Yeah. So I think he was able to compete with uh, Frizzell a bit here for attention.
1: Yeah, we've got, uh, it features a few of uh, Frizzell's uh, compositions here too. Uh, This this whole album, it's hard to uh, describe it in words, but this is more of a kind of a, being led by a drummer, you're going to think, okay, these are going to be some sort of uh, driving rhythm kinds of things, but it's completely not that. Uh, it's very much a, an atmospheric and texturized concept uh to music,
0: yeah so real plays a lot on the metal kind of the the symbols and things yeah, like that it's he's it's a mostly cymbal, his sound
1: texturist uh sort of creating this kind of palette that doesn't have driving rhythms usually actually this whole thing sort of ebbs and flows uh around kind of ideas and sounds um more than it does uh drive along with kind of rhythms so in that case
0: uh, it's you know rather unique yeah. kind of it's listening experience open, really you, yeah you, can, you have to yeah. kind of fill in the rhythm yourself
1: uh rather than uh the drums driving a beat i feel like more that he listens to what the musicians are creating and then sort of creates textures around the rest of the ideas uh, and that yeah, i got that sense too kind of a breathing uh uh, sort of freeness in the music uh, Sometimes too much for my taste But right. nevertheless I enjoyed it uh, The album starts out with a Fussell composition uh, called Mountain and right away You get his uh, spacious Tone on the guitar and Introducing the melody And you get uh, Sorel's kind of um, Light symbol where You know peppering Sprinkling uh, These uh, metallic sounds Over the kind of free rubato phrases. Uh, and in between that, you get the uh, street bass and Varelius' keyboard coming in in the spaces in between there. Uh, but you know, Frussell's tone establishes the atmosphere here as it usually does. Um, as the tune goes on, uh, Varelius uh, takes over on the piano, but he keeps the same kind of open-spaced phrasing that was established by Frussell. And he builds some more tension into the uh, tune with some really low left-handed notes. Uh, then it quiets down before uh, Fussell returns. And uh, the whole piece is really free-flowing, uh, especially you know with the cymbals uh, just carrying it along. I got an idea of like a picture of a breezy day. You know, the wind picks up sometimes and then it goes down. And uh, that's sort of, um, you know, the free flowing nature of the wind. Uh, the second tune is maybe the most uh, rhythmically driven. Uh, this one is uh, uh, the composer. Uh, I don't know how to say it's his name.
0: Ad- Adagioke Steve Ad-A-Goke Coulson. Steve Coulson. I think uh, he was like um, he had played with Surreal. Um, I'm pretty sure, and they yeah, just had before. his composition on there. And this, yeah, is, this called- is the only composition on the whole work on the whole album that's not by one of the. Um, yeah. Ensemble members. Uh,
1: but it's very cool. It's called Leaving East of Java. Um, it starts cool out with... Uh, yeah, it's cool. Uh, hesitant uh, string of chord phrases and breaks between them. Uh, it, it just continues on until you're wondering what's this going to become. Then eventually there's some kind of room between them for bass and cymbal gaps. And finally, the bass sets a kind of mysterious slow beat and... Uh, Fusel adds these kind of haunting tremolo, kind of lines over that. It's, uh, kind it's of really the quite...
0: American type uh, sound there. Yeah, yeah. The, uh...
1: But um, that the vibe between the the bass beat and Fusel's tone is really quite enchanting. It sort of gets you into a, a kind of trance, uh, and then the pace quickens, and. Uh, as it quickens, these kind of cymbal showers come in and Virelles, uh gets some tasty piano injection into there. Uh, and then it gets uh, frantic, the ever-quickening beat and uh, more dissonance in the piano uh, comes in. And then Frizzell brings in some of his sort of, uh, you know, uh, intergalactic synthesized space tones uh, on this, this synthesized kind of guitar thing. Um, and it so it, it gets... Uh, you know, really uh, hectic. But then there's kind of a a peaceful break, and it brings you back to just a short segment of the uh, introduction phrase. So uh, the tune really takes you on an interesting journey. Uh, You know, you're leaving east of Java. I don't know where you're going, but uh, it's kind of a cool change of moods.
0: Yeah, I'm kind of wondering if they're going back there at the end because the sound... The Frizzell guitar—it sounds like uh, it's being played backwards. You know, the, uh, like the tape yeah, was reversed. The looped yeah, kind I kind of got so, that yeah. that sense. So you weren't getting a live performance there. You were—they had probably recorded that on the tape and played it yeah. back. That's what it sounded like to me, though.
1: Yeah, uh, interesting think? piece,
0: though. Yeah. Uh,
1: third is another Frizzell tune: uh, "Go Happy Lucky," uh, instead of "Happy Go Lucky." <laughs> uh, "Go
0: Happy Lucky." Yeah. <laughs>
1: mm. uh, here, uh, Cyril introduces a loping kind of beat and uh, so plays the blues over some really low dissonant piano chords. Uh, the bass kind of chugs along into a walk and then the groove is kind of complete with that. Uh, Verlis adds the kind of uh, dissonance here and there before a solo of his own. And uh, rather than getting uh, bluesy from the start of his solo, he starts with kind of a series of arpeggios that, uh, Uh, get some interesting rhythm. And then Sorrel picks up on that, and he builds into more kind of uh, bluesy ideas from that. And then uh, Fussell returns to close out. Uh, He repeats the head of the tune, but he has some really interesting ending notes (laughs) to this one uh, that um, just doesn't uh, end up on the same original phrase. So that's kind of cool. I thought
0: this one, like, Frizzell was kind of playing, everybody else is playing against Frizzell on this one because he's playing Mm -hmm. something a little more traditional and they seem to be, like, going against him. He's
1: in the blues mood and they're kind of uh, stretching him out. Uh, The fourth tune is maybe the strangest one, the title track. the title track, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, So here, the beginning is kind of a cacophony of, Different sounds. There's some uh, brushing on the drums, uh, bass bowing, guitar plucking, and then synth tones. Uh, it kind of an unstable space that's created. Uh, the piano and bass add some lines to that, uh, but uh, Cyril keeps the brushes kind of padding along. They just keep, you know, playing this, uh kind of uh, rhythms through it. Um, and then, as you get towards the uh, end, uh, there's some newspaper crumpling and a uh, an oral declaration of the points of the compass. And uh,
0: I'm guessing that's surreal's voice that we hear. yeah, right? it's I guess yeah. it's
1: his voice. Uh, yeah. I'm not really sure what. I didn't read about this, you know, the yeah, there's no, no, there no notes. In the uh, CD I'm not, about this. I'm not sure. Uh, so I, I can tell you, you won't be humming along to this tune after you hear it. <laughs> well, there's but, really uh, no tune. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, kind of, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know what the word to describe it is. Uh, you know, there's something going on here, but uh, it's uh, quite different in character from the rest of the pieces here. Uh, then number five is a, uh, Varese's uh, original incienso, and here Surreal uh, starts with a sparse beat that's alternating the uh, with the bass drum, and then uh, Varese plays some kind of sparse open chords, and then Fruscell joins in and he adds another layer of sound uh, to the piano. When the bass adds kind of a punctuating punctuating phrases. But there's still a lot of space in there. So you get a lot of uh, nice rhythmic interplay uh, between the guitar and the piano that develops towards the end of uh, this piece. Um, Another kind of unique composition. Then we get another Fussell. Tune number six is Baby. And this is a nice gentle introduction by Fussell over some synth tones. And then Cyril adds uh, a lot of nice brushwork as the bass joins in and a free beat uh, carries along, and eventually it develops into kind of a waltz. And there's a lot of nice interplay between uh, the bass and guitar, what's going on with the rhythms with those. And uh, this one I felt is all about Fresnel's picture painting. Uh, this is what he does best, I find, with the mix of his tone and spacing. So I felt like, you know, this is him creating a kind of. Uh, uh, portrait of something in his sound uh then seven uh this one's credited to both Cyril and Varelias called uh Dance of the Nuances uh starts out with some soft low tones on the piano and a bowed bass and that's backed by some stick play here by Cyril and then the piano brings in some more sparse phrases uh, higher up uh and Cyril keeps playing uh, softly over some synthy kinds of sounds. The piano returns, and then it builds to some kind of thundering low phrases uh, and uh, another very textured kind of tune. And the last song is uh, another Cyril original called With You in Mind, which seems to be the title of a poem which uh, Cyril recites to us at the beginning of the song. And then it uh, comes into the music where uh, the piano starts out kind of gently and uh, very slowly on the melody before being joined by the bass. Uh, And Friselle joins in. uh, Sorrel adds uh, cymbals and carries the melody with uh, these thick tones to the end. So uh, at the end of listening to all these, I felt like this recording is really all about um, kind of creating sounds in a space and the textures among them. It's not uh, a traditionally kind of, um, you know, rhythm uh, driven jazz kind of thing, whereas, okay, this is going to be in four, four, and this is going to be a waltz or some, you know, kind of difficult meter and one tunes fast and slow. It's not like that at all. Uh, The, the, Rhythms sort of breathe and develop out of what other ideas are going on, and uh, that's the kind of character. And it's a you know different style of of drumming, but I think it takes a lot of um, sort of uh, how can I say uh, understanding between the musicians of you know that kind of creating that kind of space. And adjusting to what each other is playing, so you get a, a kind of intimate communication. And uh, but, but these players have a a strong concept of what's going on, so somehow it works uh, in that framework. So yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting, different-sounding uh, type of uh, jazz environment, and it, it's kind of fun to go along. Uh, With even though you might be you know pulled into some places where you're not sure what
0: they're actually trying to do. Yeah, I was kind of wondering what Cyril was after on this. I did think though it's mostly it's like when I talk about French composers how they compose to the um the timbre. I kind of got the impression Mm -hmm. that that's what this record was about. It was about the sounds the instruments made rather than any kind of traditional rhythm or melody or or something like that. Um. I kind of this this was a bit of a it was it's a tough listen because it's not really what you expect and this is the kind of album I only heard it twice and I really need to hear it more times because the first time I heard it, it wasn't what I was kind of expecting from, you know, a jazz record. So, you know, you're kind of like there I'll saying, oh, I wish this was something else, <laughs> but, uh, you can't do that. You have to kind of just, you know, I don't know what I could like. You got to open up your mind and say, okay, well, what is this record trying to do? It's a bit of a challenge. Let's uh, think of it that way. It's late night meditative and it's a bit disturbing really. Um, it's, um, yeah. Okay. Atmospheric. It's more of an atmospheric record, yeah. and uh, it takes it's it'll take a bit of uh, listening and thought to really get to its uh, core. I would say.
1: Somehow, I feel that uh, Cyril's sort of uh, texture kind of based approach and Frisell are like a perfect match, though. Um, mm. that, that seems to work really well with uh, the way they both approach. Uh, something, but it, it, maybe it goes uh, a bit far in that direction. Like you have to be in the mood for this, but like I say, yeah, a late the kind night of thing you need to be in the mood for a late yeah. night lights out where you just want to, uh, but know, it's not a record you chill
0: out to though. It's uh, no, you have you, to be focused it really to, needs to, it. to be yeah. listened to. Yeah, it's yeah. not a
1: background listening kind
0: of thing. Yeah. Um, it'll you grab attend- your attention probably in a way that you don't want, if you're listening to it in the background, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's, and, and also it's, yeah, but, but it's good. It's real, well worth hearing. And, um, anything Bill Frazell's on is going to be interesting to me anyway, because I just like the whole sound he makes and his whole kind of musical temperament in general.
1: Well, moving from the one guitar giant of jazz to maybe the uh, most leading player and the name that everyone should recognize is Pat Metheny. Yeah. And uh, this is, um, his new live recording, uh, Side Eye, New York City. And that's uh, in parentheses uh, 6.4 in Roman numerals. Is it numerals. 6 or V1.4?
0: Yeah, I can't really... V1. It's like a one. One yeah. V, yeah, uh, 6.4. Yeah.
1: I think it's out of some series of uh, recordings. This is on yeah. uh, modern recordings. And uh, this is surprisingly... well. You'll think it's a surprise when you listen to it, uh, his uh, trio recording. Hmm. Uh, and I say surprising because the sound is a lot bigger than three people uh, hmm. you would uh, assume could create. Uh, it's uh, Marcus Gilmore on drums and uh, keyboardist James Francis. And uh, Matheny is also doing a lot of synth work and uh, orchestrion uh, with uh, guitar. So it it makes this... Uh, three-person group sound like a much larger kind of ensemble, especially due to all the different things that uh, Francis is able to do. Uh, he's covering the bass on the keyboards, and he also brings in organ on this right. in addition to piano and synth. So you got a full palette of sounds uh, here. And uh, this is kind of a nice recording, if you're familiar with uh, Pat Metheny's uh, music going back to the 70s uh, when he started his... Uh, solo albums this sort of covers uh, a lot of older material and then it also has new things Uh, so it's sort of a nice capsule of uh, his career uh, in a live setting
0: it's even got a track off his very first album right two two
1: tracks actually yeah
0: really two Uh,
1: uh, the first track is uh, actually something new i believe it's called it starts when it disappears and it's a 14 minute track (laughs) so uh, it
0: starts when when we disappear is that is that what it is it starts I think when so. we disappear. I guess I should look it up. So uh, not sure. Let me click on the link. I may have just uh, copied yeah. it wrong. Which I think is a more interesting title. So Sorry, <laughs> maybe I that's that. it.
1: It starts when we disappear. That sounds right. Maybe but, I just copied right. it wrong. Uh, oh well, Presto doesn't have the tracks. Uh, I could go.
0: I'm, I'm going to Deezer for this. I just yeah, look on open. our playlist there. Yep, we'll do. Yeah, it starts when we disappear, right? Not we, Why did yeah. I put it? Maybe well, it is gonna be interesting natural. too, yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, uh,
1: this tune doesn't disappear for a long time. Uh, it starts with uh, some chords and pulsing synths with some real tight hi-hat uh, drumming. And then uh, Metheny comes in for uh, a lot of nice guitar work. And He recognizes tone. Uh, right away yeah,
0: that tone that 1980s sound yeah. i think he had a lot to do with that you know it just puts me yeah. right back in that era yeah that i think of, he
1: even said like yeah. uh, all um you know 90 some percent of modern guitarists are either copying like him or john Scofield. uh right. the imprint of that sort of concept of tone uh was so uh great uh with metheny what metheny had done uh and then we get some nice uh, pulsing bass groove uh, that develops uh, into kind of an energized piano solo. And then it changes again. There's a slower bass groove uh, with kind of synthy marimba sounds uh, that uh, come in for a uh, Metheny solo flight that takes off. Uh, a little bit after maybe around 10 and a half minutes, things quiet down uh, to feature some really pearly notes uh, kind of playing from Matheny. And then, uh, more slow rock beat develops, uh, after some more guitar and it returns to the intro, uh, but with the bass added uh, to it. And then, uh, Matheny ends it with a big flourish of notes that really pleases the crowd. He's got an enthusiastic house of people here. Uh, so this is, a you know, a long tune that the rhythm and, uh, Grooves change quite a few times, so it takes you on a, uh, quite a journey to get things started out. Uh, track two is called Better Days Ahead. It's a nice groove with a bounce to it. Uh, the keyboard bass works in nicely with Metheny's lead sound here. And his solo includes some real tasty bending of notes towards the end. And Francis takes over with a synth solo that has a lot of arching lines uh, in its development, and throughout all of this, uh, Gilmore gives some really tasty and tight drumming. Uh, you know, he's doing a lot of nice rhythmic work through this whole album, but you can really hear some uh, tight things here. And then the thing. Thingy.
0: Metheny's, uh, oh, sorry, I did not mean that interrupt right out there, but Metheny's like, music seems to require this really propulsive drumming. It's not really yeah. almost like not jazz drumming, it's almost some some sort of fusion sort of. Yeah, there's
1: a lot of subdivisions, and, uh, right. heavy fusion with like a rock element to it. Uh, and uh, that shows up a lot in this tune. Uh, the third tune is one that I uh, recognized. It's a timeline. And this is a, a tune that Metheny contributed to um, One of Michael Brecker's albums called Time is of the Essence, which is Brecker plus organ trio. And uh, so here we get uh, a frenzy switching over to organ, which is cool. Get kind of a bluesy soul organ jammed kind of start. And uh, Methaney mixes uh, some fluid figures and really tight chords with that. And he continues with a tasty solo uh, over the kind of undulating organ bass pedals here. And then uh, eventually the organ uh, comes in with some more backing chords. And uh, then Francis takes his own turn with an organ solo. He keeps the tone overall kind of mellow. His, he uh, Whatever setting on the stops he has is kind of dark and mellow. Uh, but he gets some cool uh, outside of the chord uh, lines. Uh, and then finally does kind of swell up uh, to a frenzy uh towards the end of his solo, uh, get that kind of uh exploding yeah. uh organ thing going. And they return to the head and the crowd goes wild. Uh they like this piece and oh yeah, uh, those shit. tasty yeah. sounds made them yeah. hungry. Yeah. yeah, it's great. <laughs> uh and then uh track four, we go back to that uh I think his first solo album, uh Brightest album Life. ever. Yeah. Is a, um, yeah. Uh, as a solo player. And uh, so you well, probably know this he, melody. No, he's um, got,
0: this is, um, I think this is a trio. Jacob Astorius is on this that's record. Right. That's why that's I was right. listening to the uh, bass in this. And I think it's yeah. a, it's an yep. organ bass or? Yeah, it's a keyboard uh,
1: bass. Um, yeah. uh, so I Matheny, couldn't make it out. You, you probably recognize this melody. Yeah. And Matheny <sighs> digs into the solo with a lot of great rhythmic accents. And Francis does a nice job uh, emulating or uh, conjuring uh, Jaco Pastorius' bass right. lines. And then uh, yeah. he, he also gets a kind of flightful synthy electric piano uh, solo himself. So it's sort of uh, a yeah, kind of reimagined uh, version with some, uh, you know, modern sounds of this one. I think this is 1976. Uh, number five is a tune called Lodger. And uh, here, this is a, much more of a rocky uh, kind of thing. Uh, it's a slow rock beat on the bass drum and rim shot to get it started. And Methidi comes in with a th- really thick tone here. This is uh, a, a little uh, variation of tones that he has here. I like this um, effect
0: on this one. Yeah, it's really nice. Guitar. It's a good sound.
1: On the melody and the organ uh, plays the backing chords. Uh, it, it has that kind of like a Hendrix little wing kind of vibe to it. Uh, with the thick guitar tone and the way the phrases swell and then there's a little bit of a break uh, and the organ really helps that out. The organ swells to the breaks at the end of the phrases and then it cuts out Mm -hmm. and then, you know, get that huge thick guitar tone. Um, So uh, that's really cool. And Methaney adds like these muted notes and trills uh, mixed in with some really hard rocking out here uh, and he brings it uh, back down uh, nicely to that, uh, you know, the the uh, intro sort of uh, phrases after his really, you know, high energy solo. So the crowd really goes crazy for this one uh, too. Because yeah. uh, this is uh, the most rocking number on here. Uh, track six is another um, tune from that original 1976 Bright Size Life recording. This is uh, Syrup Horn. Okay. And uh, Mathania is another kind of really wonderful tone that starts this one out uh gilmore has some really tasty symbol work there and uh then behind all of that uh, francis has to kind of uh channel uh more Jocko kind of bass lines on this you know which he does as probably as good as possible on a keyboard uh he gets the you know this character and phrasing uh, from the original recording uh the slow tempo and Matheus kind of wistful lines make a nice relaxing atmosphere sort of that f- jazz fusion period uh in a good way uh here uh number 7 is uh Ornette Coleman tune uh called Turnaround and uh Matheny recorded it uh let's see i think this was uh, on his album 8081 and also again uh, in 1985 on the album Song X. And he did that with Coleman uh, uh, together. Right. Uh, so this is like a, a blues with interesting harmonies in the last four bars of the. Uh, so the last phrase has these kind of unexpected harmonies. Uh, Matheny starts to solo out over only drums, which gives him some more harmonic freedom. And then uh, Francis eventually joins in with the piano. And then Matheny kind of really stretches out and takes his own kind of uh, uh, post-boppy solo uh, uh Francis does after that. And then um, there's a lot of uh, harmonically advanced runs on uh, both hands uh, in the piano, and then uh, some kind of chunky chords to uh, build to the end. And Gilmore really keeps this one swinging, and he has a, a little bit of a chance to do some trading off uh with some solo phrases before they wrap it up. And uh, finally, we end up with uh, a tune called Zenith Blue, and that's got these uh, rolling keyboard kind of chords and cymbal splashes to give a background for Methaney's really warm-sounding guitar synth. Uh, He's using the synth effect here. Uh, Finally, the beat gets going, and Methaney plays a lot of melodic uh, lines with uh, a more kind of thick, synth tones. This is a kind of like a synth tone that kind of emulates a brass instrument, uh, kind of uh, getting this kind of bendy kind of uh, phrasing with it. Uh, There's a nice reaching keyboard solo here too, and uh, the drums crank up for some really crazy uh, synth chases (laughs) as the tune Mm -hmm. kind of winds up. Uh, Things do quiet down a little bit of, again, at... Towards the end, but then it builds up to the final uh, climax, which has a lot of nice uh, drum work by uh, Gilmore. Yeah, there's uh, Some
0: cool metallic percussion in this too. Yeah, kind of.
1: Yeah. Um, he really yeah. adds a lot to keep things driving along. So
0: um, overall,
1: yeah, it sounds like a great live date. It would have been a good. Wait, wait, show do you to have be a? At.
0: Did you hear this on a CD or? No.
1: Teaser. No. Deezer Teaser, Deezer, yeah. Yeah,
0: because there's one more track. There's the Bat. Did you have, Did you have that one? Oh, maybe I missed that one. It's quiet. It's a I have it as a quiet opening. It's metheny, and a subtle bass and brushed metal on the uh, percussion accompaniment. It's um that's how it ends really. It's kind of a okay. subdued ending to this album, which is really Let me see overall one. very exuberant. Um, yeah, I, was, I thought you had the CD because sometimes they're missing like a track. They give you the bonus track on.
1: I wonder if this was the Deezer. one that um. Let's see. I've got. got Okay, I do have it in my list, but I didn't uh, have it in my notes. Yeah, Yeah. I don't know how I missed that one.
0: Oh, yeah. But Zenith Blue is probably a good ending. The The Bat was good. It was a good. It was a good track. Yeah. Um, like the Nino Rota album. Like I, I had a single word summary: caffeinated. And this album, I have a single word summary too: exuberant. You know, and I, I wrote that I think uh, Pat Metheny, Metheny is a national treasure and maybe even an international treasure but really again only america could have produced him really um he's constantly expresses high spirits in his music and this is like five decades of this now i mean i remember hearing him in the 80s and 90s and getting that feeling that that exuberant sort of spirit that he has um but i wonder if he's actually like that personally if he's
1: really
0: just he seems happy to be i mean in interviews yeah.
1: that i've seen and yeah what, what i like is I mean, other than being a real high energy live performance that even these, these old tunes, they sound really fresh still. I mean, it's not like he's going through emotions or something. This is, you know, it sounds just as fresh as the new tune and inspired. And, uh, so it's a really good, uh, kind of snapshot of, you know, it's blending this old and new things, but they're all sort of in this kind of fresh concept, uh, so it all, you know, it all sounds like it's Mm. brand new. And then, you know, for three musicians, it's a huge palette of sounds. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of things going on here, uh, with the different, uh, you know, keyboard, uh, instruments and effects, and then add on to that, you know, all the tones that Matheny can get, uh, straight. And then, with the synthesized kind of things there too so yeah it sounds you know you think it's like five or six people here but no it's just this trio yeah it's just uh, the whole
0: exuberant tone of this album I just enjoyed this immensely I really think anyone who's ever heard Methaney, you know has benefited from the high spirits his music kind of puts out there it's just uh fantastic especially now you <laughs> know these yeah. rather yeah. uh dark times we live in definitely listen to this it'll it'll lift you up it made me i was feeling good through this whole yeah. album it was really great and as is often the case when i listen to pat metheny so yeah
1: and it sounds like the crowd is just you know yeah. ripping they're it really up into yeah it. they're having a really good it sounds like a big crowd too
0: yeah fairly big especially for a jazz concert you usually hear these people these golf claps in the audience yeah
1: yeah glasses clinking clinking. glasses (laughs) Now, this is like a rock concert crowd there's probably a lot of you know like guitar heads there and so yeah uh, yeah they've been amazed and
0: uh, right great playing all the way through it too and uh, the sound it's a live performance and just the sound is all captured beautifully it's good recording yeah really good recording very present especially in the drums and the bass. So you really hear mm-hmm. details, especially in the percussion and the drums. Really highly recommended if you like Pat Metheny. It's it's kind of a little retrospective of his career, but high spirits yeah. all the way through.
1: Okay. And as I like to do, um, I like to mix things in because I always want to hear something new. And uh, I want listeners to get some new ideas too, because everyone knows Pat Metheny and probably most people know Bill Fussell by now but uh, charlie ballantine Ballantine, you probably don't know but you should and uh hmm. so we've got a another uh recording to round things out here and this is uh reflections introspection the music of thelonious monk on the green mind label green mind yeah i don't know what that is hmm. <laughs> excuse me <clears throat> but uh, young guitarist charlie Ballantine. uh and he's from Indianapolis. Uh, He's got an interesting catalog so far, and a really kind of interesting sound to me in what it is. Uh, In 2018, he recorded an album uh, called Life is Brief, the music of Bob Dylan. So it's uh, a recording of Bob Dylan's Tunes, uh, which I've only listened to a couple of tracks of, but I'm definitely going to check out. And yeah, last so am
0: I now that you mentioned it. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't even know about it.
1: And last year, uh, he recorded an album called Vonnegut, uh, inspired by the writing, the not music writing, but the uh, novel writing of Kurt Vonnegut. And so <laughs> you kind of wonder uh what kind of tunes would result from that. I haven't listened to that. Uh, yeah, but I'm going to check I gotta that say, out. I've got to say, I too. like
0: his influences, including here. You know? Yeah.
1: Um, and uh, so here he's uh, doing uh, all Thelonious Monk tunes. And I have to say that, um, you know, when you, of course, lots of musicians have recorded uh, Thelonious Monk, uh, but it's not as if he's uh, emulating Monk's piano style uh, on guitar. Uh, he very much has his own guitar style, which I'll talk about in a moment, but uh, he's just using these, uh, you know, compositions of Monk to uh, as a basis uh, to play through and uh, improvise over. And then his own kind of guitar concept for me is kind of uh, an interesting uh, tonal approach and different. Uh, kind of almost to me a juxtaposition over jazz because he is a you know very accomplished jazz soloist and player. But when you hear his guitar tone uh, with like kind of tremolo and uh, kind of this uh, deep effect on the tone, it's almost something you're going to expect from like a uh, kind of a surf guitar or 60s guitar kind of sound. Uh, It doesn't have that, you know, kind of a pure hollow body kind of tone that you might expect from jazz guitar. So he has like a lot of uh, kind of crunchy uh, chord sounds and things uh, that you might expect more in sort of a a rock kind of sound, but his concept is very jazzy. And uh, so I I think that uh, unique kind of tonal quality of his instrument uh, makes this kind of interesting And uh, here, uh, he's joined uh, by a saxophone player, uh, Amanda Gardier. And uh, she is the instructor of jazz saxophone at Ball State University, also in Indiana. So we have this kind of Midwest thing going here. She joins in about midway through the album uh, to the end, uh, which we'll see when we look at each of the tracks. We've got Chris Parker on drums uh, and Jesse Whitman on bass. And uh, Cassius Goins, the third on drums. And uh, I do have to say, this album has some really thick bass <laughs> coming out of that. Uh, I should sure play this. It was <laughs> vibrating things on my shelves when I was playing it. And that doesn't happen a lot with acoustic bass, but it's really, uh, you know, sometimes on recordings, I think they use sort of. A, A high pass filter and uh, the the very lowest tones on the bass are sort of cut out, but I think everything is here. So that real extreme uh, low frequency range is all in here, and uh, it will uh, move some objects if you listen to this on big speakers. uh, You gotta wonder if this
0: you gotta wonder if this this album is on vinyl because they'd have to.
1: I think it would jump the needle right. Jump the needle, yeah. yeah. The
0: bass can't. Well, he can yeah. kind of put the bass on the side of the groove or something like that, but yeah, this sounds um,
1: yeah, anyway. If you're familiar with uh Monk's compositions, uh, you've you probably know uh, most of these from his own recordings, and then of course, everyone else uh, in the jazz world has recorded them for years. And we start out with uh, reflections, and uh, here you get a nice sense of Valentine's uh, kind of thick, nostalgic guitar tone here, and uh, this one begins with a loping kind of swing. Uh, Whitman's bass fills in really nicely, uh, and that heavy bass will come through here. Valentine's uh, solo lines are really relaxed and melodic, and uh, as we see uh, through the rest of the tunes, he can kind of effortlessly mix in some nice strumming uh, with uh, his uh, solo lines. So there's no need for another uh, accompaniment. You don't need he doesn't need a rhythm guitar or piano. He's always outlining the melodies, and when he decides to take a break, he can switch effortlessly to giving you uh, those chords. And so everything sort of fills in, in your mind, uh, the picture of the tune. And I also liked uh, right away from this tune that he can alter his articulation and tone on certain phrases. Uh, so almost like with a voice, uh, he seems to have control with his touch Uh, to change the tone to match what idea he's expressing. Um, Second track is uh, Bemsha Swing. Uh, This one is really a hypnotic, you know, you've got these two kind of alternating chords that get these kind of modal scales over them. The drum intro is joined by the mesmerizing bass line and uh, Valentine plays around on these scales a little bit before the mysterious melody comes out. Uh, His articulation Sometimes staccato and these fluid repeated figures in his solo are really cool. And uh, there's some really nice drum filling over the riffing at the end. Uh, so atmospheric uh, and uh, nicely executed. Uh, track three is off minor. And this develops into a light swing after the guitar intro. Uh Valentine solo here is a mix of kind of fluid, boppy lines, and then again his strummed chords, uh, which he's able to put in there too. Uh, Whitman takes a bass solo, uh, and Valentine lays out for a bit uh, before coming in for some backing there. And then they trade off some lines uh, with drumming by Parker before they head back to the melody. Uh, four is uh, Ugly Beauty. Nice title. Uh, this one sort of rubato, kind of free start to the minor chords uh, before you get a slow swing on the melody. Um you know by this time you get a you know real feeling that uh Valentine's playing is uh you know carries both the harmonic outline and the soloing uh more so you know and I miss that there's not another instrument here uh because he's really giving you you know the the harmonic kind of blueprint while doing all kinds of cool melodic things here. Uh, Also, I noticed from here, his solo has a lot of rhythmic variety uh, in his phrases, uh, very inventive. And then uh, he brings it down kind of quiet before he builds it back up to the end, but then getting quiet at the end And again, so the dynamics uh, are kind of cool, taking it to where you don't quite expect, even though once you think, oh, here comes this phrase I heard before, he's going to do something a little bit different with it. Uh, Five is called Raise Four, and this is one of those uh, kind of monk tunes that's a repeated riff on a blues sort of structure. And uh, Ballantyne mixes boppy and bluesy lines uh, with these really kind of crunchy distorted chords Uh, And then uh, Whitman's bass solo has some interesting lines uh, harmonically, and they all resolve really uh, nicely. So uh, it was kind of a fun uh, tune on a monk style. Uh, Six is an alternate take of Bemsha Swing, and uh, it's a different start on this version that focuses on uh, Valentine's improvising On the kind of alternating modes. So it's different from the one you heard before. And he has some more staccato notes before the melody. And uh, the solo ideas in this take are quite different too. So it makes for an interesting comparison. You know, a lot of jazz albums, uh, especially reissues of classic uh, albums, have included alternate takes. And, uh, you know, sometimes you feel like listening to them, sometimes you don't. And uh, what's interesting is when you compare the solos and see if they're quite different or similar. Uh, of course, in the in the old days, they would never like yeah, be able to redub uh, or another take of a solo because they were all playing, uh, you know, sort of in an environment w- with a few microphones. And so, if and someone all in the same room, they're in the basically. same room, you couldn't redo yeah. just one part. But these days, you know, a lot of things are recorded in isolation, which is why a lot of recordings sound like... the, the I was antiseptic, say, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say a, a bad word, but we're a clean podcast. So uh, we'll say yeah, antiseptic. Yeah, they That's sound antiseptic one. or they have that life sort of sucked out of them because right. there's no sort of sense of space or air. And, uh, you know, if players, you know, flub a note or something, uh, they'll want to redo their solo. Uh a lot of, you know, the old Riverside or Blue Note albums are great because there are flub things and mistakes, but it's how the players work out of that. And, uh, you know, they take um, a mistake and turn it into, you know, an invention yeah, of something.
0: And yeah, that was really one of the more interesting things about Cool jazz,
1: things about really. jazz. Yeah. Um, so out of that, my point is that when there's an alternate take, you can get an idea if the the soloist had it already kind of set up solo, and when they do it again, they're going to follow that same structure. Or if they're sort of, you know, going on in the feeling of the moment and they come up with something completely different. And so this this track here, I, I thought the solos are uh, quite different from the, the other alternate take, uh, and so...
0: I just want to say that the, um, this, this whole idea of having like perfection on recordings, now you can kind of fix all the mistakes. I think it kind of sort of maybe hurts us even as listeners. Like you don't really get the sense that a mistake can be like a pathway to something new. I think people are kind of losing that, um, sort of sense that, you know, if if you make a mistake, it could be, it could be opening a door that you wouldn't have, um, kind of realized right. was there, you know? Um, so it's, it's nice to have that happen in art and then see how people handle it. You know, just, I like you know, that a lot. It kind of place into our lives as well.
1: You know, as a trumpet player, two of my favorite uh, players were uh, Lee Morgan and Freddie Hubbard. And uh, well, they have different styles in the hard bop idiom. They were both really adventurous and fearless. And um, you know, they would take huge chances with these difficult lines And, you know, on trumpet, uh, especially, it's a very physical instrument that depends on your delicate, you know, lip embouchure. And you have good days and you have bad days. And sometimes you got to record on a day when your lips, you know, your chops might not be up to snuff, but, you know, there it is, you're in the studio. And uh, what I liked about both of those uh, players is they both took, you know, incredible chances a lot. And sometimes they would, you know, sort of, uh, well, as we would say, you know, paint yourself into a corner, they would blow themselves into this kind of corner. And sometimes, you know, things wouldn't uh, come out quite as planned. And then how they worked out of that musically was always interesting to me, you know, because as a a trumpet player, I could listen to say, oh, that wasn't supposed to happen. But what he did after that was really cool. Uh, And I think, you know, that was a mark of a really good... uh, improviser to take you know an unexpected direction or even among the musicians on those albums someone else in the band would play something that wasn't planned or react in a different way and then what do you do in response to that uh, right i think those sort of problems in the resolution was a really interesting part of uh sort of unaltered recordings you know that were you know like a real conversation between people where things can you know go in strange directions
0: usually those are the most exciting um time you know parts of music (laughs) yeah anyway that's the whole point
1: of you know i think the purpose or having an interest in alternate takes of uh, tunes if there's something different that was going on. And I thought this one was kind of interesting to compare. Anyway, back to the program, number seven, uh, Panonica uh, solo. So this is uh, just a short solo guitar version. uh, And uh, it really highlights Ballantine's tone and his touch with the chords. uh, So a nice kind of interlude here. And uh, from this point on, after this little interlude, uh, we're on track eight, uh, "Brilliant Corners," uh, the famous Monk album. And so here's when uh, Amanda Gardia comes in uh, for the duration of the album and adds Sex
0: right. into here. Yeah, it's a nice little. Um, it's a, it's a, it's yeah. After seven tracks of the guitar trio, it's nice to hear this um, yeah. um, new sound. Yeah, you know? and, and I thought- thing, he's a really good soloist. He's got a really lot, a lot of interesting ideas. I was really right. riveted by him. But
1: uh, this kind of adding the sax in, especially on this tune, because uh, this is a famous recording on this album that had uh, uh, both saxophonists, uh, altruist Ernie Henry, and then uh, Sonny Rollins on tenor. Uh, And so it kind of, you know, brings more of a traditional kind of jazz uh, feeling uh, to uh, these monk tunes. Uh, Although this this uh, tune is kind of infamous. If you read the backstory on it, this is a, a really unusual composition. Uh, it's got like, uh, an eight bar a section and a seven bar B section, and then another modified kind of seven bar a section. It goes into double time. And then there's like this, uh, uh, double time theme in the second course and with these weird accents and supposedly when they recorded this originally, it took like, you know, more than 20 takes to get it right. And it caused some fighting among the musicians in the studio. You mean in uh, the original recording you really with recording Monk, with Monk. Yeah. And uh, right. I guess there was some conflict with uh, the alto player, uh, Ernie Henry. Uh, it's one of those kind of jazz uh, legend stories, but here, um, they don't have any problem with this uh, kind of unusual structure. And we get some nice uh, solos uh, over the complex uh, structure uh, that get some nice creativity from both Ballantyne and uh, Gardier. Uh, so yeah, if you have never heard this r- original album, uh, Brilliant Corners, it's one uh, they should have in your jazz collection. Right. Uh, number nine. Is Green Chimneys, nice title I don't know what he was thinking yeah. of there I but, gotta say, uh, he's
0: he's choosing a lot of these More obscure Monk tunes for this yeah. album There aren't any of the really big Kind of really familiar I think most of them come from ones. this kind
1: of blue note period um, okay. And so The sax uh, is on this one And uh, as well And a kind of funky feel Develops over the repeated riff of this tune um, Ballantyne plays a real bluesy solo over the tight bass and drum groove. Uh, and he adds some really angry chords and double stops on this one. Uh, and then uh, Guardia on her own solo here, she gets out a, a bit more in the harmonic extensions of the chords in her solo uh, on this one compared to the Valentine's uh, uh focus. Ten is uh, introspection. Uh, the sax starts out on this one, carries the melody. Uh, sometimes the guitar joins in in unison on parts, uh, sometimes not, and then uh, Guardia carries on into a solo of her own, and then Valentine. Uh, there's some really nice bouncy bass work on this one. Um, I, I like the feel that he gets in it. It sort of feeds the the solos here uh, with the. Um, uh, the rhythmic accents and the soloists can't help but kind of incorporate that uh, in there. So I, I like that sort of influence the bass gives here. And then uh, Whitman takes his own solo here. It's got some really cool triplets and some double string, uh, you know, sort of intervals on this one here. So a little bass spotlight there. Uh, 11 is evidence, uh, broken syncopated melody notes uh, of the Saxon guitar are played off over the kind of constant bass baseline. Valentine uh, solos and the bass drops out just so he's just over the drums for a while. So he gets some more freedom. Uh, And his jazzy lines really navigate the chords uh, with a cool swing. And he ends up the solo with some really kind of crunchy, <laughs> somewhat distorted hmm. chords. I like how he does that sometimes, you know, Uh he, he, he gets to the end and then he'll just do sort of a strumming kind of solo thing. Uh, and then uh, his uh, solo gets some edge uh, over the lower tones uh, right before the end of this. So that's kind of cool.
0: Yeah. I liked him alone with the drums. That was like a surprising new sound. We This yeah. is a very long album. <laughs> yeah. So you want, you want to hear a bit of variety. Yeah. 15 tracks, it's an hour and 20 minutes. Yeah. And you want to hear a bit of variety in the sound just to keep you going. Right.
1: Yeah. So that was cool. Uh, 12, Ask Me Now. This one starts with the sax solo figure and intro, then and then uh, everyone comes in, and it gets kind of a loping swing feel. Uh, you'll probably n- recognize this uh, Monk ballad. It's been played a lot. It's really pretty. Um, uh, then Guardia carries through the familiar melody. Uh, r- really nice, uh, uh, pretty approach to that. Uh, Ballantyne adds some kind of really tasty staccato notes uh, to fill in uh, while he's also playing the chords uh, And she continues on a really long solo here It's relaxed, uh, matches the mood of this ballad And the uh, way she develops it is uh, uh, measured out uh, in a kind of a mature uh, development uh, She doesn't play it out uh, before the climax So it keeps your interest in the solo uh, then Ballantyne's solo here is kind of in contrast. Uh, he's got a lot of really fluid 16th note lines uh, in here. And then he gets these kind of crunchy strums uh, too. So I liked the different approach to this tune. The the sax is really uh, ballady and relaxed, but uh, Ballantyne has got a lot of fast ideas that he works in. Uh, and then with the strum work in contrast is nice. Thirteens. Uh, this one's another a uh, pretty well-known one, uh, Monk's Dream. The uh, sex and uh, guitar double up on the melody with this one, but the sex takes the middle phrase uh, in uh, the melody section. Uh, Guardi has a swinging solo, and Ballantyne ends his solo with chords, but then he gets some uh, kind of puckish single notes from the melody that he sort of uh, kind of, uh, I don't know, he really hammers those single notes out um like do you remember this melody and then you know the melody comes mm. in he doesn't play them in the same exact rhythm as the melody so it's kind of an interesting way to uh end your solo uh, mm. rather than uh, start it out that way uh 14 uh is another alternate take uh, brilliant corners uh the intro is a little bit different uh by this time I was an, over an hour into the album, so I didn't go back and compare right. the solos on this one. I was, one. Getting, I was yeah. getting a
0: bit tired by the end of the yeah. it's
1: very long. Uh, you can said. do that if you want, but the intro yeah. is is uh, slightly uh, altered too. Um, but might be worth some time comparing the uh, solo there. And we uh, get a little bit different ending. Uh, Fifteen, a, a monk ballad, but this is just a short version of it. Uh, Let's cool one. Hmm. Uh, and it is a short solo guitar, uh, very rubato interpretation. Uh, but Ballantine here uses a lot of staccato notes, uh, and you uh, can really enjoy his tone uh, here where there's nothing else uh, getting in the way of it. Uh, when you get to the end, though, uh, you'll think it's pretty, but you really want the last note to uh, bend down <laughs> and resolve, <laughs> but it, it's not going to happen. Uh, yeah. So you get this sort of uh, uh, interesting ending on uh, uh kind of tone that's out there, um, but uh, that's kind of, uh, you know, make you want to listen to the whole album again, maybe. So, yeah, I, I really enjoyed this. Um, he doesn't uh, approach monk tunes by trying to use uh, kind of chords or phrasings on guitar, like monk would on the piano. Uh, so he just, adapts his own style to these compositions. Uh, He has that kind of nostalgic, thick guitar tone uh, that you might more expect from sort of a a more rock kind of element. Um, But he does have really great jazz chops and inventive solo ideas. uh, So that makes him not sound like most other uh, uh, jazz uh, guitarists today. Uh, His style mixes a lot of chords with his lines, But also, his uh, phrases have a lot of rhythmic variety. Uh, You know, he's throwing triplets, 16th note figures, uh, kind of odd rhythms with space. Uh, So I felt like he's always uh, coming up with something new in his lines to keep me interested. So I found him to be an interesting player. And, uh, you know, with his concept taking on an all monk. Uh, disc. I thought that was kind of an interesting choice. So now I really want to go back. Uh, I listened to a couple of tracks from the Dylan songs. I want to listen to that. And I really I want like to see to hear that as well. Yeah. I really want to see what, <laughs> what kind of musical instrument inspiration he draws out of Vonnegut uh, and see what mm. those tunes are like too. So yeah, a young guitarist with an interesting concept and tone uh, really good chops. And he seems to be uh, inspired to play a lot of different material Uh, So he'll be someone to watch and hopefully get some uh, recognition uh, in the big field of uh, jazz guitarists out there.
0: Yeah, this is an album. It's long, like I said, and I kind of wish I had more time to hear it because this would have benefited from repeated listenings, especially... Just to like like you said to compare the tracks, uh, I'm thinking we should start a podcast, uh, music from what, a year ago. So it's all music we've listened to for an entire year, and then we could yeah. kind of really <laughs> describe it. Maybe someone else out there will want to do that podcast. You know, music we listened to last year. Um, it's probably yeah, I like this. Like that, yeah, yeah, right. I like this a lot. One thing about Monk's music though that really appeals to me is his his Monk's quirkiness. There's, there are a lot mm-hmm. of really odd harmonies and chord changes. And um, in on this record, you don't really hear a lot of that. The, he's chosen some odder kind of compositions, though, that I haven't, that I'm not really too familiar with. I mean, heard once or twice, um, by musicians. But you know, it, it's a really enjoyable record. I liked I liked his playing a lot, and I was happy to hear, especially the sax come in uh, midway through. It was kind of a little bit of a surprise. Like, you know, an hour and twenty minutes of guitar trio would have been quite a lot, especially on all all um works by the same uh composer you know monk in this case but uh, yeah you can yeah, get enjoyable it, it, record, it, it, a lot of variety too
1: you can get you know sort of um put into sort of uh, a zombified state when there's not a lot of tonal variety uh right. whether in classical music or yeah that's really true and so the, i thought that the sex uh inclusion midway was a nice programming choice. And uh, yeah. so
0: in a way, this is a good companion to our opening disc uh, generation by uh, yeah, the Baroque disc. It kind of, they, they sort of vary the sounds enough that you stay interested all the way through.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. So we've got the three guitar albums here, three very different guitarists, uh, two well-known, one a giant and uh, one up and coming. Uh, so uh, hopefully you can find some uh, things to listen to here that I haven't heard before. And uh, yeah, I mean, guitar is always really cool instrument that, you know, it, I'm always interested in the different approaches and, you know, when you, when you get into guitar, you also got a lot of equipment choices and effects and things. So there are a lot of, uh, Uh, choices in, uh, you know, the physical... Especially
0: if you're Pat (laughs) Metheny. Yeah, that, you know,
1: the sky's the limit for tonal variations and approaches and then the way that uh, players uh, actually use their hand techniques and things, you know, so you can get, uh, you know, completely different sounding, uh, you know, interpretations of things. And and
0: Metheny especially has spent his entire guitar uh, career... On the guitar technology, or even in the 80s, right away, he was yeah. using all those new uh, I, was it the Sync Clavier? I, I don't know if he used that, but he um, he had all these sort of gadgets even at the time, right? That were just cutting edge, yeah, back then.
1: And uh, well, speaking of guitar, too, I noticed uh, Pasquale Grasso has another new <laughs> release, Man, out, that, and, guy, you know, that guy
0: just never stops recording. He, I just never imagine, stops, he just, yeah. He just gets up with the morning he yeah. just plays all day long and then goes to bed you Those know? spider-like fingers just he, he you know, forget to eat just... if they didn't put food yeah. in front of him or something um <laughs> you know,
1: and there you go to the you know back to you know just the most um basic jazz approach with that
0: you did know, you hear the new album it... no i haven't listened to it yet no but... what is, what is it is it like one composer uh, again i
1: think it's some um, i'm not sure um i think it's one of the series of concepts i actually believe that it's uh highlighted in the teaser jazz new releases that came up let me take a look uh hmm. right here it's uh yeah pasquale plays duke uh, duke so i guess that's duke yeah hmm. it's uh, all duke ellington tunes um he's
0: he's done monk just, as well right i believe
1: he's done a, a monk album and uh man he just keeps uh yeah. Cranking them out. His last, let's see, he had... Uh, we heard the
0: one with the vocalists, right? He was accompanying... He was new, accompanying,
1: um, yeah, uh, Samara Joy, uh, right. which I felt was uh, just a bit too busy in the accompanying
0: role. Yeah. Um, he's really not an accompanist by nature. Right? No, he, no. He really needs the spotlight.
1: Uh, and he's got uh, solo ballads. And then uh, the one I, I really liked is... Uh, Merci Toots with uh mm. for Toots Steelsman uh with uh Yvonne Prene on uh, harmonica. Uh, that one's really uh-huh. nice. Oh, I bet uh, that's good. Yeah, yeah, harmonica and guitar. Uh and then uh what else has he got here? Uh, in a sentimental mood too. Um so these he are He is worth-
0: good as a like a member of an ensemble. He will lay back when he's got Yeah. You know, yeah Ensembles.
1: So there's some yeah. uh I know the most kind of uh Traditional fat hollow body sound, there too. Yeah, so there's so many approaches to guitar. That's really cool. Right. So, but anyway, I got these three uh, that I had grouped together on my list, and I think it makes a nice uh, jazz guitar listening program. So please do enjoy uh, these albums.
0: I think Never. this might be our longest episode yet. It could be. <laughs> it's been going on for a long time. Long time, but we're we at don't the end. intend that. We're actually aiming for in about an hour and fifteen minutes, an hour and a half. <laughs> right. know, we just all them are going over two hours just now. Just Keep going. Yeah, um, but anyway, there's so much to talk about. It's so interesting. So much to talk what about. can I do?
1: This has been uh, episode thirty of Adult yeah. Music, the podcast. There it is.
0: We're up to the big thirty
1: with music for the mature mind. And uh, once again, uh, if you're still listening. All the way to the end of this episode, please do uh, like, send a comment on whatever platform you're at, or uh, send us a message at adultmusicpodcast at gmail.com if you'd like to get in touch with us. And uh, we'll be back again next week with episode 31, uh, or no regular one. I think 31 is going to actually be our special Gramophone Awards. Yeah, it is. We're going to count that uh, as an count episode. Count 31. 31. Yeah. And that'll be coming up uh, midweek as we uh, look at the Gramophone Classical nominees and winners in the various right. categories. Got some more listening to do before... <laughs>
0: I think I'm not going to get yeah, to so everything, but it's, it's, um, it's, it's not as easy when you kind of, you have a day job. I was thinking yeah. when I, when we made this plan, I was thinking, oh, we have all the time in the world and then suddenly like work started yeah. again. So we're, but, uh, uh, I realize we've to,
1: listened to, uh, a lot of them already. So I'll try yeah. to pick up the ones that I don't, uh, well, we're not going to hear all the, the,
0: um, I'm not going to hear all the, um, the shortlisted ones, but I just want to make sure at least one of us has heard one of the winners.
1: Yeah. We check out all yeah. the winners for sure. Anyway. Yeah. And uh, so that'll there's be coming. Still, up.
0: There's still two I need to listen to, that I, that I absolutely need to listen to, and I really would like to hear a lot more. But
1: that'll be coming up on uh, Wednesday. We'll record that here, so you'll get that uh, maybe Thursday. in
0: the if you're in the United States, you'll get it Wednesday evening.
1: Yeah, Wednesday evening, mm. and uh, so Wednesday night really. <laughs> look for that, and uh, mm. then we'll be back with our regular. Uh, weekly episode next week and uh so so you get a two uh, for
0: this week two for this week yeah
1: so until then this has been the adult music podcast and we'll see you again next time